This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Yannick Mayen. And I'm Luc-Olivier Dumeblet. And this week is our 100th episode. What will the topic be this week? Today, we will be talking about our favorite Apple products. Ooh. Uh, but first, we have some follow-up. Uh, I'm going to start off with the follow-up this week. Um, this is going to be some follow-up for Limipo episode 89, which was about Twitter alternatives. Uh, on that episode, we discussed two Twitter alternatives that had been growing in popularity as Twitter continued to mess shit up. Uh, we talked about micro.blog, which is a confusing thing to explain, so I'll just defer to the episode for that one. And we talked about Mastodon, which basically tries to apply the same principles of email federation by allowing anybody to have a Mastodon server and communicate with other Mastodon servers via a standardized protocol. Uh, and micro.blog this week announced two new features uh, that integrate with Mastodon, which is very interesting. So first off, cross-posting to a specific account on a Mastodon instance. So this is very similar to the cross-posting support that exists for Twitter and Facebook on micro.blog. You can log into an existing Mastodon instance where you have an account and you can cross-post to those things. However, replies that happen to that Mastodon post do not propagate back to micro.blog. Uh, so fairly standardized thing, and this is available to all users. Then things get very interesting when we talk about the second feature, which is... A little complicated to explain because of the limited availability, but we'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, basically, they put in an emulation layer to participate in the ActivityPub protocol. So Mastodon servers can talk to each other over the ActivityPub protocol, which is a protocol that says, I'm a Twitter-like service. I'm a Twitter-like service too. Let's talk to each other and exchange messages. Uh, and this is a standardized protocol that the entire Mastodon network is based on. And now micro.blog is able to participate in that network and emulate it under certain conditions. Uh, so on micro.blog, if you have an account, uh, you may remember the whole notion behind micro.blog is that your Twitter feed is not actually a Twitter feed. It's a blog behind the scenes secretly, except it's not really important, but they seem to think it's important. Anyway, uh, for ActivityPub support to work uh, on micro.blog, you need to have your own domain name, uh, attached to your micro.blog blog and you need to be hosted on micro.blog which effectively means you need to pay for a micro.blog account and you need to be hosted on micro.blog and use that with a custom domain if you meet all of these conditions then and very specifically all of these conditions uh, you can enable activity pub support and start following people who are on mastodon instances randomly uh, and they will appear to you in micro.blog as if they were micro.blog users and they can follow you as if you were on a one-person Mastodon instance by looking up your address with your custom domain, and that will work. And you are basically a, part a participant in the Mastodon network just doing so via micro.blog. So this is, one, like, when standards work well, like, that's what it does. It means that different software can cooperate and talk to each other in a standardized way. However, there are caveats, of course. Uh, Mastodon has a lot more features than micro.blog, and micro.blog doesn't support all of the features. So, for example, you can use content warnings if you're posting uh, pornography or something that can trigger uh, somebody on Mastodon. You can say content warning. You have to click through the content warning uh, and dismiss it to actually see the post that, that's under it. So it's kind of like the when you go to uh, Twitter and it says, like, this user posts naughty content. Are you sure you want to see the naughty content for this tweet? You can do the same thing except with a custom description on Mastodon for any individual post. Uh, these are not support, supported on micro.blog, so if somebody posts porn, you're just going to see the porn straight 
on your timeline. Uh, no click through to get to the other thing. Uh, and there are a bunch of other features like this that are not quite supported. So yes, you can communicate between Mastodon and micro.blog and you can now follow people on one or the other, but you have to meet specific conditions and feature support is incomplete, but at least it's there. Uh, so very interesting thing. I still think that Minton's attempts at trying to be a good citizen on the open web is making micro.blog's limitations a worse product. Uh, and I hope someday they will wake up, but uh, right now it doesn't seem like it. Uh, just on a personal front, like I haven't been to micro.blog in two months and I'm still paying for it. Uh, I, I think it's important that services like micro.blog exist, but at the same time, like I feel like it's just not an exciting place to be right now, which is unfortunate. And it's weird that one of those limitations is the way I remember your episode was that uh, one of your kind of suggestion to the micro.blog team was to say like, don't let people have, because you can host your blog in the WordPress instance yourself or correctly, or well, it, it, it can be any blog software as long as it speaks Micropub, which is the blogging protocol that micro.blog expects. Okay, yes, but uh, I, I recall that one of the suggestions you had for the team was to say, like, just use micro.blog, like, don't have the option to have your code. Well, I, I think the entire aspect of blogging as it regards to micro.blog is a mistake and that it shouldn't be anywhere near the product. You should just try to be a Twitter alternative and they do not want that. It is like a design goal not to be that. And I'm never going to get what I want, which pisses me off because I think their product is suffering because of it. The other thing that uh, the way I understand Mastodon and that feels uh, strange to me is the fact that you need a custom domain. I wonder why they can't become their own like micro.blog uh, Mastodon instance i don't understand that either that that makes no sense to me like the only thing i can think of is this is an incentive to try and get people to pay for the hosting thing but like again the entire point of micro.blog is you own your own content and you can host it wherever you want and now you're offering features that reward you if you host on micro.blog which disincentivizes people from hosting on their own servers which was the whole fucking point in the first place so i it's just very dissonant to me and it makes no sense and just cut blogs out of the thing entirely and do a centralized service and we'll be fine but they won't do that good uh in episode 890 uh, i talked about the car subscription universe and it's funny this week because one of the service i discussed is going away oh so uh cadillac announced that they are about to shut down their the book subscription service so uh, the service will be shutting down by the end of the year. Uh, I have a link in show notes uh, from the Wall Street Journal describing uh, more or less what Cadillac said uh, in their press release. But what will happen, I think right now, uh, they were mentioning maybe the uh, New York owners that were part of this. No, the New York users, excuse me, that were part of this program. And they mentioned, uh, Cadillac was mentioning that they will all receive a letter saying the service shuts down in on december 1st and that they will have the opportunity to go to a cadillac dealership to buy or lease a cadillac car of their liking um, if you may recall this service was launched earlier last year so this service was about like 18 months old more or less i think it's launched in march 
uh, and it's about to shut down in December of this year. So it was a uh, short-lived. Cadillac is a bit wishy-washy about the reason. I think we kind of know that it's been because it might not have been as successful as they thought. But the other thing that they are also wishy-washy is about its future. So they say right now it is shutting down, but who knows? Maybe we'll bring it back. Uh, I guess it's typical like PR statement, and they might know that they are uh, they failed right now. But who knows what will happen in the future about car subscription services? That's more or less what they're currently saying. I really would love to know how many people signed up for that thing. Yeah, I don't know because if you recall, the Cadillac one was the $1,800 per month car subscription. I was one of the most flexible one because you were uh, able to get access to the whole Cadillac lineup and you could have uh, changed car I think, like 30 times per year. Uh, so it will, was really flexible. So like in most cases, you have a, maybe a sedan car and then all you need to go to the mountain or you need to do a long trip, you can go to the and exchange it for a next Scalade for the next two weeks and do that a couple of times per year up to 30 swaps. Uh, but yes, it, it was a, a service for the rich and I guess the rich still wants to buy cars or lease cars. Uh, my next point is about episode 96 uh, where I reviewed the NES Classic and also predicted that Sony would launch their own uh, classic console, which as we uh, discussed in previous follow-up, they did. Now, since last episode, uh, Sony announced the full lineup of game, and I will go quickly through it. So the first one out of 20 is Battle Arena Toshiden, uh, Cool Borders 2, Destruction Derby, Final Fantasy 7, Grand Theft Auto, Intelligent QB, Jumping Flash, Metal Gear Solid, Mr. Driller, uh, Oddworld Abbey's Odyssey, Rayman, Resident Evil Director's Cut, Revelation Persona, Ridge Racer Type 4, Super Puzzle Fighter 2 Turbo, Siphon Filter, Siphon Filter Tekken 3, Tom Clancy's uh, Rainbow Six, Twisted Metal, and Wild Arms. So that is the official lineup for the North American market. And Europe. And Europe. Okay, I wasn't sure if Europe was that too. But uh, a bit like the uh, NES and SNES, there is a Japan-specific lineup that you can uh, quickly Google and find on the internet. And this lineup, if you forget or went through fast, uh, there will be a The Verge article uh, going through this list again. But I'm sure you will be able to quickly find it. Also this week, uh, the press, the gaming press, was able to attend a Sony press event about uh, that happened maybe I think on last Friday, something like that. It's a bit vague when it happened, but it happened uh, in the past few days. And we are recording on Thursday, November 8th. And this morning... Uh, there was some kind of, uh, there was an embargo, but I'm unsure if it's reviews or first impressions. First impressions. Lot, it was really a first impression. So it wasn't clear because uh, the way that uh, the the journalist was talking about it uh, in different publications was like they were able to uh, play with the game uh, console. They were able to like, there's a lot of comments about the quality, about how it looks, how it works and stuff like that. Uh, so it's unclear, uh, but like you said, this first impression, now it's a bit clear to me that it's more like they went to a Sony press event, they were able to do that, but they didn't, were not fed with review units, uh, units just yet. Uh, one that I quite liked uh, was from Polygon, which will be linked into the show notes. It sounds like, uh, and pardon me if anybody's going to cry in the audience for hearing this, but it sounds like they're repurposing Vita hardware to make these PlayStation classics. Yeah, I saw some of tweets about that today, I was, I, and I was crying when I saw those tweets. I was like, oh, really? No, the Vita. 
yeah. rip the Vita. And in general, it seems like emulation quality is okay. I mean, they're using PCSX, which is an open source emulator. They're using the basically like the same version you can get on Android right now, which is pretty good. Um, but the problem sort of comes when, when you look at Sony's history with uh, PS1 emulation. The PSP emulator for the PS1 is basically perfect. Uh, it is the closest thing you can get to actual PS1 software running on that hardware. Uh, and part of the reason for that is because both the PSP and the PS1 used MIPS uh, processors. So it wasn't actually that hard to just emulate the APIs that were there on the PlayStation and actually run things on the bare metal if you wanted to. Uh, and the Vita emulator, as far as I can tell, I don't know any technical de details about the Vita PS1 emulator or the Vita PSP emulator. Uh, but the way it has always seemed to me is that it's a compatibility layer that is actually emulating the emulator from the PSP, uh, which is very strange, but given the quality of that emulator, makes sense. Uh, and now the fact that they're actually reaching out to using an open source emulator means that the quality has actually downgraded since they've uh, released that PSP emulator and Vita emulator, which means people are pissed. I think people were going to be pissed about the quality of emulation regardless of what they did, which is basically the retro gaming community in 2018. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and at the same time, like having seen the North American uh, game library for this, this is not a very good lineup. Uh, the Japanese lineup is much, much better. And I don't know if this is going to sell that well. I hope it does, but I don't think it will. Hmm. But yes, so uh, as a reminder, it's going ab it's going to be out on December third, which is in about more or less a month. Oh, uh, I, I have follow up about our follow up about that date, December third. Uh, yes. Yesterday, I watched a video on YouTube that was basically an hour and a half of PlayStation commercials, which is a horrible idea. I really don't <laughs> recommend it. You will have stupid huh. jingles in your head all day if you do that. Uh, but one of the things that I noticed about uh, the date, which we didn't know was the Japanese launch date on the last episode when we talked about the PlayStation Classic, uh, this was actually part of the jingle uh, for their commercials, their launch commercials, because they were just saying it, Ichinisan. One two three or twelve slash three, uh, so they were just like mm. having various people in different situations chanting "Ich ni san, Ich ni san," ah. and that was like their launch thing. And uh, here in North America, we had the much much edgier Enos lives, which is ridiculously stupid. But Enos was Sony backwards, uh, if you <sighs> and literally Enos was like expect the ninth of September if you spelled it out. Which was a fucking terrible slogan, uh, typical of Sony. But yeah, I prefer the Japanese advertising. And now this week, I've spent like all week obsessing over PS1 games. So maybe I'm going to buy some PS1 games. I don't know. I I've been looking at eBay all week, so I'm ready to spend some money. And uh, on that note, uh, we'll confirm this, but it, it will be the 24th anniversary of the launch of the PS1 in Japan, which was that was mentioned in the Polytocom first impression. Okay, let's move to our main topic. I would like to start by saying I know we kind of did into uh, did in the past episode because the uh, our episode 99 was officially our fourth year anniversary, but uh, Yannick and I decided to keep it for the hundredth episode. But Limipo started uh, more or less four years ago. So, like I said uh, earlier, we're recording on uh, November 8th, 
and we did publish episode 2 on uh, November 9th, 2014. I'm quite excited and happy that we are already like 4 years old as a podcast and we did 100 episodes. So uh, this week I've decided to uh, do something special and of course uh, Yannick agreed. And that idea came mainly from the discussion about the last uh, Apple event. Uh, it felt to me that on Twitter and on some of the tech news sites, they were talking about like the Mac they love because for some of these people in the last Apple event, the Mac they loved and their favorite Macs got some loved again, whether it's a MacBook Air or the Mac Mini. And it, it kind of uh, was interesting for me because I was uh, reminding myself of all my uh, owning history of Apple products and even some of those that I just used uh and that was a quite interesting uh like fun history or fun tool to do uh while reading those or while listening to podcasts this week to say like what will be my favorite apple product and that's what we'll be going going through today in podcast forum so the way we wanted to do is uh yannick and i identify uh six categories more or less the mac the ipod the iphone and the ipad which will be our four hardware categories and then we would like to talk a bit about uh, both OSs, Mac OS and iOS. And as you may have guessed, those categories are in historical order. So we will go through them and we will conclude this episode by having our all-times Apple pro- favorite Apple product, which I think that is going to be the hardest decision in this podcast is to select only one. Uh, I'm sure in each of these categories, we might have multiple contenders, but at the end, we need to select one and only one product or software that will be declared as Luco and Yannick, one of each, for each favorite Apple product in date of these, uh, of 2018. Hopefully, uh, maybe, who knows, maybe it will change in the future, but uh, we'll put the flag there for now. Are you ready to start with our first category? Yes. Okay. We will start with the Mac. Uh, I think... If I go through my list, uh, I don't have that, m- not saying I don't have that much, but I think I have two uh, contenders right now on, under the Mac category. And I think it shows, it will show because, uh, my Mac history compared to people, especially compared to Yannick, is more quote unquote modern. Uh, my first Mac that I personally owned myself was an iMac 20 inch from 2008. And this iMac is still, uh, somewhat alive right now. It's in a box. Um, but uh, to this date, uh, it is still, uh, working fine. Uh, though I, since I did some, uh, cleanup slash painting in the apartment, I didn't put it out the bag of the box, but hopefully it will have survived that. Uh, and then I could declare that this, uh, iMac is 10 years old and still working as, not very, as new as it was 10 years ago, but at least it is working, uh, fine. It was, uh, funny aside, it was, my main uh, podcast computer for years uh, but now I'm using the uh, work laptop for now because it is in a box but I think I want to start to talk about my first Apple laptop which I bought in 2011 and I'm sh- I would like to know Yannick is that laptop on your list too uh, the, I have the 2010 model but okay so yes the MacBook Air second generation that's the model we're talking about are both on the list, and I, w- I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, to be honest, that is the model that a lot of people were reminiscing in the past few weeks, especially Apple, after the Apple event. And it 
reminded me how I loved this computer. I felt that one of the reasons why is so I bought this computer to uh, at the beginning of my university studies. So it became my university computer more or less. So it would be an amazing computer to work on for dev purposes without it being too much of a horsepower machine for that. I still remember that it was not ideal in certain cases, especially when I was running uh, VMs, Windows VMs. But in general, it was uh, quite of a nice like laptop for studying purposes, even if you're you were like me in uh, computer science. And of course, at that time, I was. Uh, going from places to places, like uh, going to this building on campus or going back in Trois-Rivières because at that time I was studying in Quebec. So mobility was quite important for me. And every time mobility is important, I would like as much as I can because sometimes I'm quite bad at this, but I would like as much as I can that I travel light. And the MacBook Air was good at this. One of the main decisions why I waited for the 2011 update to the second generation MacBook Air was mainly for the uh yes of course updated cpus but mainly for the backlit keyboard because the way i remember uh it yours the 2010 was not backlit it was not and at that time and you know what i remember we had long discussion because you were in the camp like i don't care about backlit keyboards and i was in the camp of i do and it's funny because uh to me a backlighting of the keyboard on a Mac laptop is always set. Let me try it right now to make sure that I'm... Oh, right now it's set to middle, but usually it is set just to the lowest setting or the automatic setting, but I, I adjust it a bit manually. But usually I just need some light. I don't need full brightness of the keyboard, but just making sure that I use the key... I have some... Uh, I can see the keys because sometimes, yes, I look at the keys, but uh, backlighting was big feature and was happy that Apple added it at that time on uh, the 2011 model which made it for me a no-brainer to get. Uh, if I recall correctly I did not even look at the MacBook Pro at that time. I was like nope that the MacBook Air is the one to get and you know what this machine uh, now if I compare it to my iMac uh, this one buying me a bit mobile and uh, indeed it, it uh, I think it's closer to the retirement home compared to my iMac which my iMac I think it's like it's about to enter its uh, luggages into the retirement house. Uh, but the MacBook Air, uh, which is still surviving and working quite uh, well-ish, uh, I think the battery started to swollen a bit. So, uh, yes, yes, yes. Might uh, want to get that to the recycling center. Yes, I'm not sure because I just see that it started to, some screws started to be loose. Ooh. And I don't see it to be too... It's not started to be that thick but uh, it's it it is obviously on its uh, last miles uh, for sure so right now tony is mainly using it but he like he doesn't use it too much uh so it will depends on uh, what will replace it for him whether it will be an ipad or another laptop but yes so uh the macbook air uh did a lot with me and i think that's why i kind of have fond memories of it uh like I mentioned a lot, uh, just in general in my life, I spent a lot of time uh, away from uh, Quebec during my university studies. I spent uh, six months in Sweden, and that was also my main computer while I was gone. So having something that I could travel with and still be able to do my day-to-day -day stuff in a mobile form was just amazing. And I think that's 
that's to me what was the main attraction of the MacBook Air. It is is versatility. Versatility. You could have got a MacBook Pro at that time. Yes, of course, if you needed uh, more CPU power. And I guess if I were at that time doing a bit more uh, iOS work, or if we had a language like Swift that is more like CPU bound when you compile it, uh, of course, I would like I would have liked to have more power. But its versatility was so good, and you you felt you need you could need it more power. But the fact that it was with you more or less all the time. Like kind of counterbalance that aspect of it, and I think that's why it is one of my biggest contender as my favorite Mac device. The MacBook Air, looking back at it now, seems like an aberration of value in the timeline of Apple laptops, because before the MacBook Air, low-end MacBooks were definitively low-end. Oh yes, my dad, uh, one of the first. Mac, yes, the first Mac we bought as a family was a MacBook, like a plastic white MacBook. Yeah. And one of the cheapest ones because uh, we were on a budget for that laptop. And it was, ugh, like, that really, machine did really not bad. age well at all. <laughs> oh no, before, when we returned it to the recycle center, you should have seen its crack case and it was like not white anymore, it was like kind of a yellowish. Uh, and it was slow as hell. It was just crazy slow. But then, Looking at the flip side, you have to remember that when these laptops launched, they launched before SSDs were standard in the MacBook Pro. They were non-Retina MacBook Pros as well. Um, That's true. So you had basically like this period of time where the MacBook Air was, if you could stomach the low SSD size, it was the best Mac. Like it was no question. Like, yeah, you could get a faster CPU getting a MacBook Pro, but the gain in performance you were getting by using an SSD machine, depending on your workload, most workloads were IO bound. So they greatly benefited more from the SSD improvement than they did from actual CPU improvement. And it felt like they had completely reinvented the Mac uh, when that Mac came out. And it's very significant. And that's why it feels like a mistake. It feels like it's like when they make a magic card too good and they have to ban it afterwards because it like destroys tournaments. It's like, this was the MacBook to get, no question, for a good period of time. And it's only when the Retina Pros started coming out that there was like this clear delineation between like, well, if you want this, get a Pro, and if you want this, get an Air. Otherwise, like, it was really hard to choose what laptop was good for you, especially if you were in the like mid-range to hot starting Pro area. Like, if you weren't doing video editing but you were doing like programming like it was a really hard time to choose a laptop and i think the macbook air actually won out for a lot of people um and then you also had the added benefits of the mobility right and all that stuff so it was like a completely mind-blowing thing that i don't think apple can ever recreate in the laptops even now because now they're trying to like correct the mistake and make the low-end model low-end again and Unsurprisingly, people hate it because they've gotten used to having this incredibly value-focused laptop in the lineup for like eight years. And like, of course, its value had deteriorated over time because they stopped updating it. But True. And also the value, because it was SSD-based, it wasn't that cheap. It was way cheaper than the first generation was because of all the improvement it uh, they did uh, the technology did in the last few years after uh, the first generation but in 2010 when it was in, introduced 
it was not that it was not that cheap mainly because of the ssd and to be honest uh, uh you're making a good point excuse me about the ssd i think the main reason why my mac survived 10 years is because i think four years after, after i bought it i saw or even three years i think uh, like the second the warranty ended the apple care ended i like started to replace it our it's hard drive to get an ssd and it's still this like maybe six seven years old ssd that is still in this hard drive at a time where people were kind of saying like oh putting ssd for the long term not so good because it might just die randomly it was still at that time it's still running and i think the reason why it gets got out so much of the, my iMac and i think the same applies for the macbook here was those first ssd even if they might not have been the best on the reliability reliability spectrum compared to typical hard drives but i would maybe not say that too much they were still so far ahead speed wise and just like convenient wise that uh it's hard to uh, go back to that world yep and if i can just channel apple very briefly like apple's oh, channel comments. apple wow yeah Apple made some comments this week that like one of the reasons that the MacBook Air hasn't seen updates in a really long time is that basically like performance improvements and processors have leveled off to the point that they're basically not worth making speed bump updates for. And I think that part of the reason that your 2008 iMac has lasted this long, it's that's literally why. It's because processors are not getting that much faster. At least Intel processors aren't. And if you couple that with the fact that now basically every Apple Mac is on SSDs, you don't, you're not able to rely on the SSD speed gain to, uh, make, simulate a speed bump in a new Mac purchase. Like everyone is already on SSDs. So now all you have to optimize is those processors and they're not budging. And, it's really interesting that our computers are going to have significantly longer lifetimes because computers are becoming less and less worthy upgrades because Intel is doing a bad job of innovating on processors, question mark. I, I don't know enough about processor tech to actually like assign blame correctly, but it's not looking good for the personal computer, let's just say that. Yeah, and on my limited knowledge, of course, Apple is making uh, leap bounds with the ARM architecture, but it feels to me that for some of the like super performance chips, it feels that like Intel either are underperforming or they're like at the edge of what we can physically do in our current like understanding of the physical world. So either, and I tend to feel that it's that like, yes, they might not be the best company at executing and that could be your own opinion. But to me, like with all the improvements we've seen in the last like 30 years on CPUs at this point we're running to a specific limit until like we spent maybe years trying to figure out what's next and maybe it means that for now we try to we, this uh this slowdown of the curve on improvements and uh, evolution on Intel CPUs was uh helped by the advancement in SSDs but it feels to me that right now we're starting to slow down on SSD. Yes, Apple is bigging new chip and stuff to make them faster. But at this point, like if you get like more than like two gigahertz per second, uh, two gigabits per second read and writes, like it's fast enough for most of our needs. Uh, the guy that hears, I don't do big video files, but I think even then, uh, 
it is we were at the point where starting to like to not be a hockey stick anymore the growth is not hockey stick like, we started to like whoop it started to round slowly but surely rounds off and be more like slow like maybe one x improvement every year or two x improvement every year not like 10 20 thousand x per year just before we go back to the topic i do want to jump in and defend intel very briefly because they have a vestige that they have to deal with that apple does not have to and that is they have to make sure that windows keeps working uh, on their processors and they basically they can't fuck it up and make a completely new architecture out of nothing because their business is going to be non-existent if Windows doesn't work reliably on it, more or less. So it limits what they can do. It limits the significant changes they can do to the architectures and stuff like that. Like ARM, uh, Intel 64 has, uh, well, it's technically AMD 64. AMD 64 like hasn't seen, changed significantly in a really long time. Uh, and they probably can't make a significant change like that until they go until the next big wave of processor technologies, right? Uh, so Apple, on the other hand, they don't give a shit. They they know <laughs> their chips will only ever run their OSs. And if they happen to run another OS, it's just a lucky accident. And they can design specifically what they need. They can morph the OS or morph the processor based on what is easier to do. And I think that opens up a lot of avenues to Apple that leads them to be number one in the chip game today that Intel can't really compete with because their business is dependent on Windows PCs. Oh, totally. I, th- I think the best comparison you should have made is remember when, uh, so now we are edge to edge screen with everything for the phone. And remember when people were saying that, oh, Apple should do edge to edge screen like phone. And then people, the other side of the coin was saying like, yes, you know, but how can Apple make like 60 million edge to edge phone like, like this, right? It was easier for Apple, which right now for CPUs, they're like, they're limited. They know what needs to run on it and they don't have to do that much or that less compared to Intel, which is the big dog at that point. Okay, you know what? Since I talked a lot about my pick, do you have anything else to add about the MacBook Air? Uh, like you mentioned, you had a 2010 model, yes. but you didn't mention which size, because at that time, we had two sizes. Yes, I have the 11-inch Air. It is super cute and super great, and I wish they still made 11-inch Macs, but alas, they don't. Seriously, that's the only thing you had to add about the MacBook Air? I mean, I've said a lot of really nice things about the MacBook Air already. That is true. That is true. Good. Do you want to go for another Mac pick? Uh, uh, How do I want to do this? Uh, Well, okay. I'm going to say it because it's the obvious pick. Uh, Mac SE 30. Uh, So this is like the obvious pick for anyone who has lived the classic era. Which is not me, by the way. The reason for this is if we can compare to the MacBook Air for a second, like obviously it's not a laptop. Uh, so don't bring this to the coffee shop. It's not going to be very effective for that. However, um, it is kind of that aberration of value of the classic era. Uh, I know a lot of people on the internet who have used an SE30 like from the moment it came out to basically until the G3s came out. It is that kind of what? super longevity machine. That would be like, what, 15 years? Something like that. But like, Shh. you have to realize that there was basically no progress being made on the Mac in that period of time. And the SE30 was basically the best classic Mac ever made. And we'll get back to that during the OS section because that sort of ties into the things. But it supported an incredibly wide range of operating systems. Uh, although it supported... 
System 6 and System 7, which are both very important because they sort of are the emblematic classic operating systems in my mind. And like it was just a workhorse. It had lots of memory. It could have a hard drive. It had, I believe, a 68030 processor, although I'm not so sure anymore. But I'm pretty sure it's a 68030 processor, which was plenty for most applications. It was just a really damn good machine. And like there are entire websites dedicated to the SE30 on like, how can I continue to use my SE30 in this day and age? And it's getting very hard, uh, because obviously like modern hardware is not designed for it. There are no Wi-Fi cards that are specifically made for the SE30, nor, nor are there the, really the places to put, uh, a Wi-Fi card in there. Um, although one thing that is absolutely hilarious is that the Cisco cable modem that came with my horrible internet, contains instructions for system 7.5 in the instruction manual even though it was released in like 2008 or something it blows my mind like there are no instructions for how to install this on a modern mac it literally only has like windows 95 and system 7 and if you don't know how to set it up with those well fuck you and it's like a wi-fi router like i don't understand uh it's mind-blowing uh wow so yeah SE30, like, it's really just on this list because it is classic analog to the MacBook Air. And it's a very loved machine. And when I had mine, I loved it a lot. And unfortunately, the thing that killed it is I was going to try installing NetBSD on it because it's one of the Macs that runs NetBSD incredibly well. Um, unfortunately, like, we had to do some hard drive swapping and stuff like that. And my dad... Uh, screwed in a screw at the wrong place and screwed through the hard drive. <laughs> oh no! So RIP the only hard drive we had that fit in the SE30 and that killed that computer, which is super, like, it's a shitty way for the machine to die. Uh, but like, otherwise it would have kept going. It's a tank. It's a really good machine. And I had tons of fun exploring all of the abandonware from the classic era that I did not know about. Uh, for years on that machine like it was a great gaming machine uh, all of the classic mac games provided they were grayscale because yes this was a grayscale machine um, like this was just a ton of fun to play with and it was a workhorse for people who were doing real work at the same time and it lasted basically 15 years at being relevant as the top of the Macs you could get like really good machine and this is why it's really loved by anyone who lived in the classic era. And I feel like I have to say it because I am a person who grew up in the classic era. And that was my favorite Mac of that era. And it looks beautiful because of the Snow White design language, which I also really love. Good. I seriously don't have that much comment. I think... I can imagine. You're, you're really lucky I haven't talked about the Apple IIc on this episode. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I was... I was about to say I was afraid that you would do, but no, seriously, I was expecting you to talk more, a bit more about the uh, classic era of Apple stuff. We'll do it more in the OS section, though. I think so, and that's. I, I remember, I remember years ago when you were like, bring bringing me to that level, like talking to me about your own like experience growing up with those Mac, and like, like I was freaking my mind up just like learning this, and I remember. Uh, Again, during my Sweden trip uh, in the city I was at Linköping, there was a computer museum. And they had, I would call it just a classic Mac because uh, I would guess it's SE30 because it looks like a SE30 or like it's just a Macintosh. Uh, and it was still working in 2011 as a demo. Like you could, as a person going to the museum, just go play with it. 
and it was my one of my first interactions. I just ima- I remember just freaking out. <laughs> and I think the thing I texted you at that time for is like, so I opened a text document, I did something, uh, and that's probably it. And you were like, of course, there's nothing to do on those machines anymore. Like, there's nothing <laughs> worth it doing. It. Like in 2011, there's nothing. So that was quite funny uh, when that happened. But I was like seriously like freaking the f out when I saw this machine in the museum, and especially that it was working and set up as a demo so people can just play and enjoy that machine and i think it will be the mac because i think it had a color screen so that may be just a macintosh it's probably a color classic Uh, because color classic looked like this original all-in-one max and it had a color screen so probably color classic Uh, then that would be it good uh now that we are on the desktop side of things i like to talk about a couple of the desktop macs that i've been using that in the past few years uh like i mentioned in while i was talking about the macbook air the only desktop i'm the desktop mac that i own was uh imac 20 inch 2008 that is still alive but before that i had uh i we i attend during high school i attended one of the rare uh school here uh in our in my own town that were i think it was the, even the only one that was using mac uh in all of their like computer uh, labs and just as as a whole the company the the school was mainly a mac school uh up until we left and i think yeah. two years after yannick and i left uh it went back to all pc because the the it technicians kind of changed and it went from a a complete mac geek to a, t- a complete like windows geek and then the macs went just bye out of the school which was sad to me but hey it's life so uh, during that my School time, it, it was from 2003 to 2008, which was the, uh, eye of the, it was kind of the last world, let's put it this way, the last world tour of the, uh, IBM G series CPUs and then the switch to Intel. So we had the shit ton of iMac G3 and iMac G5s. I think we bought a bunch of iMac G5s just before the Intel, the Intel transition. Which I think was what made me sad that the school didn't renew them. They just kept the iMac, the iMac G5s, which was a nice look. This first, like, back to all-in-one with an LCD, uh, no more CRT screens and all that stuff. In the, in the familiar all-in-one forms that we know to this point. They what introduced that all-in-one form in 2006, 2005, if I recall correctly, with the iMac G5. And, more or less, the iMac Pro of today, like, you can see the transition up until there. Like, it's nearly 15 years at this point. So, I had the opportunity to play with, uh, to have, like, to learn and study and also sometimes game on those iMac. And also have some fun experiment with the Wi-Fi at that school mm-hmm. on those uh, Mac computers. Lots of good memories. Mm-hmm. But the other one that was also funny to play, I think that was my first experience with a Mac was the iMac G3 and the eMac because we were a school. So uh, our school bought a shit ton of eMac and boy, they were slow beast. Oh my God. When Yannick was talking about the uh, MacBook being like in, uh, <laughs> at that time being the laptop being like really like the low, like the, the okay configuration was really, really bad and really, really cheap. The eMac were that. I think they they were the uh, iMac G3 successor, meaning they had a CRT screen, 
but they add slow dog GeForce CPUs in them. That's the way I remember it. Honestly, looking back at it now, I would be very curious to see what the performance is like if you put an SSD in there. Ah, interesting. Like, I, I don't have the answer. I think, that, like, those computers had relatively slow hard drives to begin with, which probably didn't help. But of I course. think if you put an SSD in there, maybe performance would be better because basically it had the same processor, as far as I know, as my iBook G4 at the time. And my Ooh, iBook G4 yeah. ran much better than whatever this eMac was. And we have to factor in also, like, stuff was happening over the network as well because we were... Oh, true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's always that to factor in, which slows stuff down. But yeah, I'm not necessarily convinced that it is objectively a bad machine. I just think, like, it was really slow and painful to use when it was there. Oh, yeah. I don't think... I cannot, like, seriously, at this point... uh I remember, I think it was a year ago when we were talking about, uh, you were asking me more or less, do you remember which OS you ran? Uh, because you, you arrived in uh, secondary three year, so the, the third year of high school for in, us, uh, in Quebec. Yes. So I've, uh, and I moved, I, you didn't, I didn't do a, a school switch like you did. So I started like in high school year one. Uh, and I was talking to you because the Emacs at that time were phasing out for the G5s, if I recall correctly my timeline because i remember most of the labs when i when i started high school were all emacs and then you arrived and they were like doing the transition so you were asking me oh do you remember which os it was when i'm like dude seriously <laughs> i don't really know and i remember i think i think the last time we met or maybe last year when we went to grab a coffee we were like talking about uh do i remember which mac os version or mac os 10 at that time uh it was called uh, that which version I first played with, and from my weird description, and also from now looking at uh, ISMH nice collection of screenshot for uh, macOS and macOS 10, uh, I would say that it would be have been 10.3 Panther. What the name? Yeah, Panther. Panther. I think it will be 10.3, but we move quite quickly to 10.4, and then that 10.4 I can remember that I've been to the about my Mac menu. And then look, and it was said like 10.4. And that I do remember. So uh, I don't want to move too much to the OSs because we'll have to do it. All of this is to say uh, my recent memories of... and um, It's hard to me to select a favorite desktop because as you can see right now, my uh, I had limited users and all of it was before I like do a lot of computer stuff. Uh, even if I was a kind of... If I was a kind of a computerly inclined teenager, let's put it this way, I was a computer nerd. Uh, it was still too early for me to kind of remember those details or like take or the remembering part is more like I was not like trying to remember those details like I do right now. So I don't recall them. And then now it's too late. It's lost by uh, to time. But uh, I do love my iMac 2008 and a bit like the uh, MacBook Air. It was the second update after the redesign in uh, 2007. They shipped the new uh aluminum body design with the glass panel and all that stuff before that it was the plastic design with the lcd so uh i tend to like to get the second generation on mac devices but i think that uh, w once we look at the iphone list at uh, my iphone own list you'll see that this doesn't apply to iphones oh it does but it does not at the same time so it's weird so i don't have a pick too much for modern mac desktops mm. I would like to pick like some Mac Pros, but never really played with them <laughs> or owned them. 
love them and I think uh, Yannick and I have a, a shared love for the Exerve which I've seen once in our life in my lifetime like yeah face I, w- to face. I was definitely going to mention the Exerve if you didn't because that machine I love it so much the entire line like I, I don't even care about any specific model but uh, I, well I think the prettiest one is Exerve G4 but man that machine it was so good and like a, a couple of weeks ago i saw a video on youtube that was like using an xserve in 2018 as your as your desktop and <laughs> oh i was God. freaking out i was like i need to watch this video and the guy basically says well it's effectively the same thing as the last mac pro that was made that was not a trash can uh so if you can enjoy that then you can enjoy the xserve as long as you don't really need super gpu stuff which is a very good point and the other point that he made is it's really fucking loud so if you're <laughs> if you're not in a server farm uh you're going to hear it a lot uh which is kind of sad because i think the xserve is great and i would like to have one but not if it's loud um but yeah i i definitely love the xserve i remember the first time well the only time i saw an xserve yes and it was loud. I do remember that. Now that you mentioned it, I do remember Actually, because it wasn't. It's not the the only time I saw an Xserv. So I, I saw two oh. Xservs. I saw Ooh, lucky you. I saw the Xserv G4 for the first time in 2006 when I was in Switzerland at my uncle's then laboratory because he is a microbiologist, and that was the first time I saw the Xserv, and I, I was freaking out because it was amazing. Uh, and then we saw the one at our school, which was the other yeah. one. And I do remember the one at our school was quite loud. Yes, it wasn't. It wasn't. So our school was in an old building. So it was in a weird cabinet that decided to transform into a server room. But it was literally a cabinet or like a <laughs> wardroom, a, a wardrobe room. I would say like it's. A, it's a, it was weird. It was like an old like small storage area in uh, the IT guys, the IT guy uh, office. And you open, like, it was like, you hear a fan, I'm like, okay, yes, he has a fan on something. And then he opens the room, it's like, like yeah. super, loud, super loud. And then he, I remember there was a Mac Pro, like the cheese grater, uh, on the floor. And it was like, just minding its own business because you know that its big brother was like making so much noise and doing so much shit, uh, above him on the shelf. Yep. I'm just going to go through and mention the other, uh, Macs on my list because otherwise we're going to be here for three weeks. We're going to be here for three weeks. Come on. <laughs> so I had the 12-inch PowerBook G4 on here because it was sort of the thing that got people really into powerful small Macs. Uh, it was really the first one that really pushed the envelope. Uh, like you can make the case that the iBook, the iBook G3, the white iBook G3s and the iBook G4s sort of pushed into that direction, but the PowerBook was really like a step above what the iBook was giving us at that time so i wanted to mention that uh, which ex- one did you own the g3 or g4 i owned an ibook g4 okay uh 12 inch uh yeah so we mentioned xserve we mentioned macbook air and i want to mention uh the retina macbook pro just because it feels like the next generational jump after the macbook air and we can argue about if the next jump with the 2016 mac pros uh, is as good a jump, I would say no, but whatever. Uh, like this MacBook Pro has pretty much close to MacBook Air importance in the hearts of creative professionals right now because it is their baby and it feels like it is being threatened by modern Mac laptop future and we are holding on to it. So for sentimental value, I'm putting it as in my Mac list, but honestly, MacBook Air is probably the top Mac 
like by a landslide for a lot of people. And that's why it was in the keynote. They referred explicitly to it being the most loved laptop last week. Like this is a very important machine. And I don't think it's any surprise that we both really love the MacBook Air. And you're right. I think too that the Retina MacBook will always have a special place in my heart because like I mentioned, and I'm recording with one right now, it is my first professional machine compared to the MacBook Air, which is more or less the machine that helped me become a programmer. The MacBook Pro is now the machine that helps me to do that day to day and love make me not, not the machine makes me love what I do, but like it's helping me do what I love day in and day out. Yep. And maybe in five to 10 years, this will have been the last Mac that I've ever owned. Who knows? So might as well Ooh. put it on the list right now just <laughs> to make sure. That's true. You own a 13-inch uh, model, if I recall correctly. Yes, I do. Honestly, I would have preferred like an 11-inch 11, 11 model if it had existed. Or I was, I mean, I was also really tempted by the 15, and I sort of also secretly wish there was a 17 of it. Uh, I, I just think the MacBook Pros are really good machines in general, and like, I don't use this machine much, but when I use it, I don't have much to complain about. Although now I am complaining about the stupid fucking keyboard backlight, which ever since I've <laughs> updated to Mojave, I can't turn it off anymore. Oh, really? There's no, like, off setting? Uh, well, the button to do it with the keyboard, like, the the backlight control buttons don't work anymore on my laptop, and I don't know why. <laughs> it's because uh, there's dust in your keyboard. Oh, oh god damn it i'm gonna have to replace the entire bottom case <laughs> oh wait i have a good laptop that's not gonna happen but you still have key <laughs> problems you still have key problems yeah i know but uh, yeah aside from the backlight thing which started like literally a couple of weeks ago uh no issues with this laptop and i'm very satisfied with it even though i'm not so satisfied with the state of the mac os but we'll talk about that later good let's move to the next hardware category the ipods awesome and the iPod where my the iPod where the iPod was because I only owned okay let's include iPod Touch so I only owned two iPods in my whole life and the iPod 5.5 generation which was the first one to do video was my first Apple product so when I say that I am kind of a modern Apple fan that's why. And I'm sure you'll see more when we talk about the iPhone themselves, which I own a shit ton of them. But uh, I wanted an iPod for so long. Uh, I remember when you had your first gen. I oh, it wasn't second, second gen? gen iPod. Well, it was second gen because it was the bigger hard drive. I remember when you brought that to uh, to school. I was like freaking the f out again. Uh, Use that for a long time, too. It lasted like two years or so. It was so good. It's on my list, of course. Of course. It's so, yes. so good. And that iPod made me love iPod even more. Because after that, they got the through the Gen 3, which I think here was not that popular. And I think it started to be quite popular here in Quebec with the 4th and 5th Gen. Which I think, when I bought my 5.5 uh, Gen, like, everybody knew that add an iPod, either add that one or add the new, like, Nanos. Because that was also the time where you could get the nanos the other important distinction is that the fourth gen ipod was the first one to be universal mac and pc out of the box whereas the previous ones you had to hunt down a specific model for if you had a pc or a mac oh really even for the gen 3 well the gen 3 was the first pc and uh 
Okay, but you have to have a specific. Oh, because you could still get the gentry with FireWire. Yes, and I, I honestly, for the earlier iPods, I still think FireWire was the way to go. Um, but yeah, you you could get it via USB for use with Music Match and eventually iTunes for Windows. Hmm. But yes, um, uh, it was quite interesting. So of course, put the shit ton of music. That was also my first device to listen to listen podcast with. Uh. Watch a couple of videos, but that was quite weird. Uh, I think it died because a bit like your uh, dad's story, I tried to do some fucking stuff, uh, fun, funky stuff with it. Uh, I think move it to an SSD and I broke some parts and now it's dead. Um, yes, yes, I remember what I've done with it. I had a whole uh, a old like um, Acer uh, netbook at that time, which had a shitty uh, hard drive. So I, no, she, uh, she, was it the hard drive? Yes, no, it was a, a small SSD, was which was also shitty. But I decided to put the SSD because it was using the same connector. So I decided to do a SSD swap and the iPod, iPod, Touch, uh, iPod uh, Classic, and it kind of died because of that. So um, I think I accidentally I, I broke something or stuff like that, or I needed to format it correctly and I didn't do it properly. So it died because I tinkered with it, but I'm sure it would have survived a long time if I did not tinker with it. But at that time, I only had an iPod Touch. Yes, I had my iPod Touch and a couple of iPhones already. Except this uh, first-gen iPod. Did you own a lot of iPods? Because I don't recall singing with other than this one. No, so I had the second-gen iPod. Then I got later, after my second-gen iPod died, I got the second-gen iPod Nano uh, in black because it was really, really beautiful and of course the black was only available if you got the high-end 8 gig model um Ooh, so I, gig. I had to save up for that one those were the two actual ipods that i owned uh i mean technically like my family had a fourth gen ipod that we won in a pepsi contest uh which was our first ipod proper but i didn't really use that much um my grandma won one in that same contest too which was really weird uh lots of people in the family winning ipods that year um and love pepsi yeah, we were a Pepsi household. So yeah, I had those. I honestly, I really love the second gen iPod because Firewire, Firewire is amazing. Firewire does not have CPU bottlenecks when you are transferring data from one to the other. And like, I felt the CPU bottlenecks when I was doing USB transfers to iPods a lot. So I was much happier with Firewire syncing and I still think it was the correct choice. Uh, the iPod Nano was really interesting because it was the First, yeah, I think it was alongside with the 5.5 gen uh, iPod. It was the first one to have the search feature, which allowed oh. you to search up songs and artists and album names by scrolling through a list of things and writing in the first few digits, which is actually how PlayStation Store search works now on the PS4, which is very strange. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but yes, it was one of the first arguments for the iTunes database, like because for long, like people did not a lot of like tech nerds were kind of against Apple, like their Apple iTunes database and the concept of the iPod. Like a lot of people loved, like I manage my own MP3s, but having a database of all of your music, that's where it shines because searching can be fast and hopefully reliable, which is was. It also was the one that supported the uh, the Nike Plus shoe thing. So That's you could go true. out and I had run. That. I also had that. 
Uh, I did not do that much actual running with the shoe thing, but I did try to activate it whenever I could. Uh, so that was pretty interesting. And then, like, my top pick for the iPod is the third gen iPod Touch, which, like, we can argue about whether or not the iPod Touch is actually considered an iPod. I was about to say that because I'm sure we'll talk a lot about the iPhones and include the iPod Touch. But to me, it's very emblematic because, um, there's a lot of things combined together to make that like the greatest iPod for me. So the first thing is I bought it with my Iconoclasm day one money. Uh, mm. The day I launched Iconoclasm, it was like at 7 p.m. And then I went to bed a little bit later. I woke up the next day and I could see how much money I had made the day before. And it was a lot of digits, a lot more digits <laughs> than I was expecting. <laughs> and I was like, well, I'm still rocking this first generation iPod Touch right now. I definitely need an upgrade. I'm just going to go to the store tonight and buy the iPod Touch that I want. So I bought like a maxed out third generation iPod Touch. So already they're like off to a good start. Um, so it's like that trophy iPod from that original day of sales. But then on top of that, like the software for iOS started getting really, really good around that time. And the app store was starting to get really high quality apps and games at that moment. And this was still the moment when premium games were viable as a business on the app store. So it was a really good gaming device as well. Like not even joking. It was like, I didn't have handhelds at that point in my life. And I didn't feel like I was missing out on anything because all of, well, I'm not going to say the franchises that I wanted to play were on iOS, but there were really good premium games that were worth playing on the iPod that have since disappeared. Um, which is unfortunate. And then there's just the fact that iOS 4 is a fucking brilliant operating system. And we will talk about this later. Uh, but like the third generation iPod Touch and iOS 4 together is like the best fusion. I was running iOS 4? Uh, yeah. Well, it didn't come with iOS 4, but eventually it got ah, iOS 4. okay. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, I assume you meant, you meant it come, it came with it. So no, no, no. Know. In the got period you. I was using that iPod, iOS 4 made it a mind-blowing device and that is when sort of like ios grew up for me and when it became like my favorite platform probably so there there was a lot of growth in the ios space while that machine was current and it was the one i own and that's why it's very important to me good i think we're done with the ipods yep i now we re quite realize that uh, our iPod history is quite small. I remember a lot of my friends were having going through iPods a lot, uh, especially in the Nano period. Like I know Fucking some rich of my kids. friends. <laughs> yes, that's. But you've seen that too, right? You've yeah, seen yeah. that too during high school. They were like, they get the first gen, they get the second gen, they get the third gen, and they got uh, all I, I the mean, gen of Nano. We should clarify that we went to a private school, and therefore, <laughs> yes, there yes. were a lot of people who had a lot of money there. Yes, but. It was funny because there was a lot of people with a lot of money, but it was it was funny to see you like in the background with your own laptop, which at that time, not to say that you looked like the rich kid, but like it was like so out of the picture. It was not in the mind of the rich kids. Yeah. Like, in, it was it was like, what the fuck is this dude with his laptop here? <laughs> More or less. That was the attitude that a lot of people had with you, which was quite funny if you think about it right now, because I wouldn't be surprised that. A lot of people have a lot of iPads, even when we're in high school. And that I wouldn't be surprised. I'm sure a lot of high schoolers right now, they have their own cell line 
with their cell phone and their iPhone XS that is just being updated and all that stuff. Which to me that now feels normal, like what, fifteen years later? But when we started high school in two thousand three, that was abnormal. We will talk about that when we get to some of my iPhone picks. Yes, which is now the time. Okay, iPhone. I think it is the device that I have the most history with. So since I of course the my love for iPhone started with the iPhone, the OG, so I have the iPhone, let's call it this way, like Apple did. Uh, was not available in Canada, sadly. So if I was able to get one, I think, a couple of months before the 3G launched. I was able to get one with for a good deal. Uh, somebody imported it from the US, uh, broke it and all that stuff. And I rocked this uh, iPhone 2G for, I think, a year and a half because I changed it for 3GS the day the 3GS launched. I remember. Uh, so, that would, so that would be, I think, on uh, July 2009. Yes. I was uh, seriously freaking out when they announced the white backs, which, in retrospect, I love the white backs, but the 3G and 3GS backs were complete other poop. Like the uh, MacBook laptops, the plastic used for those were really, really cheap and really brittle. Uh, I still have this 3G, 3GS. Uh, I have to maybe undust it, but just if I were to give it to you and just show it to you, uh, you would uh, think that this device is like 20 years old as, as it looks like really used and not used in a good way. I remember a lot of people were showing pictures of first gen iPhones and those aged quite well. The 3Gs and 3GS did not. No, really not. And at the same time, it's kind of unfortunate that Samsung thought those were the phones to copy to do the <laughs> Galaxy S. It's like you yeah. could have made a prettier phone. Like it's not hard. No, and it's really like they kind of kept more or less the same design with the kind of the tempered edges and until the four, which starting the 3GS, I updated my phone every two years because I went. So I did 3GS, 4S, 5S, 6S, and then I have the 10. And if you do the calculation, 2009 till now is nine years. And of course, I am midway. So for that, I've been four generations where I was on the improvement generation, aka the S year. And now, of course, it reset it again with the iPhone 10, 10 years after the original iPhone. And that's kind of more or less the logic is I've owned six phones and we are about to be to the 12th year of existence for uh, the iPhone itself. Um, I would say right now, my two favorites are the 4S and the 5S. Um, huh. I'm surprised, but yeah, go ahead. Uh, so the 4S, I, I picked up my 4S again, and I think the first uh, gla- like glass and the glass packs, so you had both glass on both sides, and, uh, and the fact also that the new iPad Pro kind of look a bit like this uh, 4S and 5S designs where they are square. Yeah. They have square edges. No more round. Uh, even if I told you in the, my iPhone 10 reviews that I love the look of it and stuff, it feels to me like in and I don't know why it feels sturdy. It feels like it's a thin device and not really compared to what we have right now, but it feels like it has a presence in your end that I feel the uh, 6, 7... It's coming back with the 10 and 10s, 
but those two devices were emblematic for a presence in your end. Uh, some might say that it's because this, the phone grew in size, but and that would have felt weird to be a squared edges uh, phone with like the iPhone 6 and 6 Plus designs. But uh, you know what? I felt that it would have given you the pre- better presence uh, in your end, and I would like Apple to see maybe go back to a more like squared off device uh for the edges i think it's a mind trick though because i don't think it's got to do with squared corners at all i think it's density could be could be uh don't forget though that because the 5s and the 5 series was taller it felt less dense because there was more area to put more or less the same content in it yeah uh and you felt that the 4s was super dense like super it felt thick when it was not because it was quite dense and then you move to the virus and like wow it's the same phone but just like i have like oh next row of icons in my screen and it felt like they're a feather and it was more or less the same design uh of course uh both reason again for us they've improved on the antenna gate uh but the main reason why i love the 4s technology speaking about cellular is it was and still is to this day one of the only phone that you buy it once, you can use it everywhere around the world. Yeah. And I mean everywhere. Uh, of course, with the launch of the uh, Verizon 4 and the quote-unquote the CDMA 4, uh, you needed different models depending on your cellular technology. Uh, of course, in Canada at that point, most carriers moved away from CDMA compared to the U.S., um, even uh, right now with the LTE technology, um, the problem still is if I were to buy it, I think it's better with the recent LTE phones, but with the first few LTE phones from Apple, if you were to buy it in the United States and then you wanted to go to Europe, for example, forget LTE because your phone wouldn't support the right bands. Apple is getting better and better at this, but you still have three kind of internal SKUs and to me, that 4S was the pinnacle of it. Like, I would imagine right now what we have as, like, dual SIM for the uh, 10S, I would have loved that uh, for the 4S. And I remember it was also the phone that that I used while I was in Sweden, and it was really as simple as just remove the SIM, you put the European SIM card, and then voila, no need to worry about which, did I get the right model? Because you did. It is the only available SKU worldwide. It was also the first phone, because of the intention of the glass back, it was also to be the first phone, no, it's quite the inverse. It was the first phone to have a front, a white front. And the white front was supposed to launch on the 4 lineup, which it did quite late, a bit like the Verizon iPhone 4. But uh, the 4S kind of solved that, and they solved all the uh, production issues. So that's why, to me, it's the iPhone 4S, feels like the first refined iPhone. And I think we'll come back to this team a lot with iOS 4. Because I think if into that, and that's the only comment I'll do right now for iOS, <laughs> iOS 4 might have been the first, the real first refined version of iOS at that time. And I think we'll go into too much uh, bigger details later. But yep. to me, the iPhone 4S was the first defined, like refined iPhone. The 5S was like, let's evolve this. And then it's the first aluminum phone with a bigger screen. Uh, and again, with its look, looks amazing as a nice uh, 
presence in your hand and the fact that it is the only the design that survived three generations is also telling because it feels to me that the iPhone 5 design is kind of Johnny's favorite design. That's why it got uh, got this SE treatment, which I think DC will die. And the reason <laughs> it's why, already dead. It is already dead, but people are like waiting for uh, kind of a new version of the SE, and I think it won't happen because when the SE was announced and Phil said, "Oh, SE means really special edition," it was kind of the last like tour for the five aesthetic is like here's the last time and i think i think it's where the forest they can they would they fucked up some stuff with the antenna and maybe with the white colors on the four when they moved to the five the the first five the black on the five phones were uh problematic but they moved to space gray and then the five s is also the kind of uh, the the first ones that have more color than just black and white they were the first gold ones, and then later on, they see the rose golds that came with the iPhone. Uh, I think it's success. Yes, the success. So the SE and the success got rose gold. So to me, the 4S is the the, the my favorite one for the presence in end, and the 5S is kind of the best example, the the the, the favorite design that Apple has on any iPhone, and their uh, the SE model shows that exactly. Cool. Do you want my picks? Of course I do want you to pick. Why are you asking me if I want to pick? Of course I want the iPhone picks. I guess I have four picks. Four? Ooh. So the first is original iPhone. Like this, not shocking, but it changed the world. So it deserves to be on the list. The presentation where Steve Jobs announces the original iPhone is still, it gives me shivers to this day. Um, so it it's definitely... a phone. It's a oh widescreen iPod. The, it's the an internet part, communicator. Oh my God. The worst fucking part is when Jimmy Iovine announced Apple Music, and he he didn't even realize he was like making a reference to that, and people in the audience laughed, and he was like, ah, "Okay, I don't get it." And I was like, "Oh my God, no! Bring back Drake in his Apple jacket." Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So original iPhone needs no mention. The big dog. Uh, next up, of course, iPhone 4. So iPhone 4 is notable for me because, first of all, retina display hype, but also because it was my first iPhone. Uh, I did not buy an iPhone until the iPhone 4. Uh, and largely, That is true. I forgot about that. Yep. So I was late to the iPhone. I was not late to iOS. Like, I've had a first-gen touch, third-gen touch. I eventually collected basically every iPod touch that existed because I needed test devices uh, for every version of iOS from three-point-something to whenever I stopped, like nine or something. Uh, so I had a lot of iPod touches. But yeah, so I never really was much into cell phones. The only cell phone that I have ever wanted was the iPhone. Uh, so, well, that's not true. I sort of had a crush on a couple Nokias back in the day, but that that's about it. And the iPhone 4, first of all, I needed it for Iconoclasm because I needed to figure out what the Retina display would do. Uh, and unfortunately, this was one of the phones that launched later in Canada than it did in the US. So I had a, like a while, or maybe they launched at the same time. It just, I ordered too late and I had to wait a few months for mine to arrive. I don't remember which one it was. But either way, it was my first uh, iPhone. The camera on it, like, it was better than the point-and-shoot I had at the time, uh, which meant I never had any excuse to use a point-and-shoot ever again after that point. And actually, it's a little later after that that I ended up buying my NEX3 because the iPhone 4 made me into photography again, uh, which was really interesting. 
retina display was beautiful. Uh, text is gorgeous on the retina display. Um, so that's a great thing. Icons and the entire pre iOS seven aesthetic looked fantastic on a retina display. <laughs> and the iPhone four is like the perfect example of that. But let like Yannick, text looks amazing on a retina display. Text everywhere. That's what we should do. Oh, God damn it. No. <laughs> Shut up, Johnny. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I, iPhone 4, I really loved it. It was a great introduction to the iPhone for me. Um, one of the issues I do have with the iPhone 4, though, is there was an issue with the home button. Uh, and mm, I, I think yes. this was underreported. I think it's a bigger deal, honestly, than fucking Antenna Gate, because like the only people who actually experienced Antenna Gate were people in the U.S. on shitty AT&T networks. Sorry. Uh, outside <laughs> of the though. U.S., Antenna get- Gate did not exist. Sorry, Americans. Um, but yeah. Uh, so uh, the home button thing, basically, like it stopped registering clicks very well. I'm not going to say very quickly, but basically after a year, it became maybe like 60% success rate and it slowly started dwindling over time. I think it was better in the 4S, though. I don't have any hard data about that. I think it was better in the 4S. I, not I remember. I have somebody else we went to high school with 4 as a test device with a broken home button. Yeah. I got it super cheap because of that. Luckily, around that time was also the time that assistive touch showed up on the thing. So you could put yes. a virtual home button on the thing, which is gross, but at least it exists for when your home button uh, dies. So iPhone 4 was very important. I have a phone I don't own in this list. Ooh. And it's the iPhone 5C. Oh, that's a hard. Okay, I see why, but that's hard for me to put in the list. Well, okay, I'm going to put it in here mostly because of two reasons. First of all, it's gorgeous. Have you seen it? And second, I like the idea of the low-end slash inexpensive model being new. I really dislike this Tim Cook approach of taking last year's premium product and downshifting it. I don't like that. And one of the reasons I don't like that is that, uh, like, the other day I was talking to my a coworker who has a iPhone 5? Yeah, no, 5S. No, maybe it's actually a 5. Um, but basically, an old phone. And uh, <laughs> we were talking about like the new phones and what he should get. And he said, I'm thinking of buying an iPhone 7. And I told him, no, 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 no. If you're buying an iPhone, you can't buy an iPhone that isn't from the year of release. Because if you buy an old iPhone, it already has time off of its expected lifetime. So if you buy last year's iPhone, you can expect average iPhone expected lifetime minus one year. If you buy two years ago's iPhone, same thing except minus two. Whereas if they make it a new product, that average lifetime resets to the actual time of when the product was released because it's a new product. So you have more expected lifetime out of new products that are, quote, old phones than you do if you just keep permeating the old phones into the lineup infinitely except when they put the old cpu of this old phone they deprecated right well yeah it can because of the like 32-bit migration which is sort of like the downfall which is more or less what happened for the poor 5c right is your theory applies and it applies even more to the se or i wouldn't be surprised with what the 10 hour will be in a couple of years is by waiting six months trying to cheap not cheap enough but trying to make other parts of the phone cheaper but keeping its engine the cpu 
as good as it can be, you can still provide good shelf life to people and then give a more uh, budget-conscious device. Yep. But like uh, 5C, it, I just love that it was a way to like infuse personality into the iPhone lineup, which is otherwise very premium and limited in how you can customize it. Like it's not like the Apple Watch where you have like a billion different combinations of ways you can customize your thing. On the iPhone, it's like take the naked robotic core and buy a shitty case for it that makes your phone look ugly. But choose one of these 5,000 ways your phone can look ugly. And Yeah, it, it was the iPod Nano of the iPhone. Yeah, definitely. And unfortunately, that flopped. And that means that now <laughs> we have, we're stuck with fucking old phones in the lineup forever. So, yay. I'm eager to see the success of the 10R for that. Because, you know what, maybe in a couple I, of years... I do too, but it's not really a budget model. It's, we have a True. mid-range flagship and a high-end flagship. And the mid-range flagship is the same price plus $100 of the old flagship, which is kind of a pain in the ass. Uh, yes. So but that's, that's not going to that. Yeah, that's another episode. And last phone, obviously, iPhone SE. Like, I can't not mention it. It is my favorite iPhone ever. It is the one I have right here. I'm getting due for a replacement. I am seriously making puppy eyes of that 10R, and I almost bought one today. Um, Ooh, really? Yes. But wow, I, I'm surprised. You hate big screens and you will go for the 10R? Wow, I hate big wow, screens, wow. but I also hate the thought of having to spend like another year waiting for a potential SE replacement, which I, hmm. I honestly like I don't think it's coming. I really wish it would, but I don't think it's coming. I uh, I never asked you, but how is it on iOS 12? Oh, it's fantastic, except like I'm less worried about the performance and more worried about the battery. Oh, you should maybe try to plan a trip to Quebec City to get the cheap battery uh, replacement before the end of the year. I would never trust. Oh, okay. You mean uh, an Apple battery replacement? Yeah, yeah that's why I'm saying yeah. Quebec City or Montreal. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I could do that, but like because it will be like thirty nine bucks if it's done before the end of the year. Yeah, but like at the same time, if I can look at the battery prep pane, it tells me like you have ninety percent capacity, and I'm like, is this thing actually working? No, that's okay. You just cold sell and say it's bad, and then it will replace it. Voila. Yeah, but I I don't want to waste geniuses' times like that. And the other thing is like I want a better camera. Like I still have this fucking iPhone SE camera, and the 10R camera looks fucking amazing. So like that that's the problem. Is I love a lot of things about the 10R except the size and. Uh, like it, it seems like a tremendous value. Although, like again, like it's a thousand dollars starting price here in Canada. Like it's not that great of a value, probably. But I'm going to need to get a new phone, and if I'm going to have to live in a stupid big phone world, then I might as well get the, the best biggest. value. <laughs> no, the best value big phone that I can get. Uh, still, and it's still I, the I want biggest a fucking one. yellow phone, dude. <laughs> The yellow one looks amazing. It looks amazing. I want the yellow phone. So I yeah. need to go back to the Apple Store uh, to go see them. Yeah. My dad went and saw them last weekend, and I am very jealous because I have not had the time to go anywhere to go see these 10 hours. Maybe this weekend I'll go to the mall and see if I can find one. But yep. So that those are my iPhone picks. Good. Next category in the lineup and the last one for uh, tonight uh, hardware wise I don't think we'll talk about the Apple TV nor the Apple Watch I think we, Yannick and I decided that the Apple Watch is uh, too early uh, especially since we just both changed to the uh, Series 4 and we have the same uh, lineup like 
the Series 0 and the Series 4, we decided to uh, remove the uh, Apple Watch out of this because it is still considered too young in our uh, opinion. And Apple TV, lol Apple TV. Yeah, I don't Apple think TV is all suck, sorry. Oh. Okay, maybe the last comment, the quick comment about Apple TV. Did you ever own the uh, Mac OS base one? No. Ah, okay. I did own one. And okay, that was okay, quite okay, fun. okay. Honorable mention, the the Mac-based <laughs> Apple, TV Apple TV for being yeah. a weird-ass product. The, T, the Apple TV first-gen was uh, that. I think, yeah. And then I got I write one uh, here right now. I do have the one that is the the third-gen, but the dev, the dev model. I got the, the one that says uh, that it was kind of funny on the box because uh, they uh, ship, uh, oh, I think it was like, what, $1 or $10? Yep. It was something like super cheap. So I won the lottery and then won the the rights to pay Apple money for cheap uh, Apple TV. Good. Let's move to iPads. Da da da. Last hardware category. If you have an iPad Mini on your list, I quit the podcast. Okay, I do have an <laughs> iPad Mini in my list of stuff I used. Well, thank you for listening to Limitless Possibility episode but, 100, everybody. Uh, whoa, 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 whoa! I'm not saying that it's um, one of my favorite iPads, and I think right now. One of my favorite iPads will be the 10.5 Pro that I have. And I think that will be one of my recent, one of the most recent device that we'll put in this list will be the Pro 10.5. Of course, there's an honorable mention for the first iPad, which I think, yeah, we both had, right? You no, had one. No, I don't. Well, I, I owned it, but I didn't put it on the list of picks. Oh, I'm surprised. But yes, uh, so I owned my, uh, the original iPad for years. Uh, I kind of neglected my, the iPad lineup, uh, more or less. I had that. I didn't, I used it a lot when it got out using the lot during university. Uh, but in between finishing university and after buying it in 2010, uh, during the university, I was using the iPad, uh, first gen a lot, but never felt the need to update it. Never felt the need to go to the iPad 2, nor the 3, nor the 4. Uh, and then we got to the iPad Air and the Mini 2 once I, I started to work, right? And after that, I got Air, Air 2, and then the Pro 10.5. So I've experienced, and I have, I, I think I've used all recent iPads since 2013, but not really, uh, they were not assigned to me, so I don't really, they're just like, of course, doing some testing on it. But, uh, and that to me, my first mention, ignoring that I just said the Pro 10.5 because I want to go back to the Pro 10.5, but, my first mention would be the iPad Air. Yeah, it's on mine as well. If you think about it, the iPad, the first iPad was a great achievement, but it was thick and big and huge. And then they kind of lied to you with the iPad 2 by making it more like the uh, iPhone 3G, 3GS, like a rounded back. So you feel better about it. The iPad 3 was a shitty iPad because it was trying to be Retina with the shitty performance of the iPad 2. Oh, but it uh, was so good, though. But whatever. What? Okay. I, the, the screen I'm, was good. The performance oh, yes. was... Eh. <laughs> yes, and that's why they kind of got out with the iPad 4, which they kind of did... They released it at the same time. They, they switched everybody to Lightning, but that iPad died quite quickly because they, it was kind of mid-cycle for an iPad cycle. And then it was the, the Apology Air. iPad. More or less, more or less. And then they released the iPad Air, which if you look at the iPhone lineup, it feels to me that the, the, iP- the a lot of people got the iPad 2. So a lot of people skipped the first generation, went to the iPad 2, 
skip three generation and then replace them with iPad Airs or iPad Mini 2s if you were an iPad Mini lover. Which my only mention of the iPad 2 here is this generation of device where you had the iPad Air and the iPad Mini reminds me a lot of what Apple is doing right now with the iPad Pros but on the cheaper, more consumer level side where you decide which screen you like, you can pick a small iPad if you want or big iPads, up to you. But you get the same level of performance, whichever is your screen preference. The iPhone XS is like that right now. The iPhone Pros have been like that for two generations. I feel that Apple should do that with the more consumer-friendly or the mid-level uh, iPads and they're not doing that with the iPad 9.7 and right now with what they said in the last event I don't think they will but what what would be the other option like a mini either they go back with the mini because some people love the mini or maybe they bring up with uh like maybe they do with this 12 inch like they have like 10 11 12 13 mm. or if they wait for a, a year they do 10 13 11 15 right if we want to go into, but now I'll uh, talk about the uh, iPad productivity user and then you'll be pissed again. So I don't want to go too much in that route, but I do feel that the more we go pro, I think we might want to have bigger iPads. Like imagine the current body style of, a, of the 12.9 or the, the, the second gen 12.9, but with a bigger screen. The same thing they've done with the 10.5 and just give it bigger screen, but the same physical size. They could do the same with the same physical size of the current uh, not current because they released it, but the second gen 12.9 and just picking it a big, giving it a bigger screen and not just shrinking the body size. So all of this is to say, uh, iPad Air felt to me that the iPad first few generation had a bumpy road. They were on bumpy path and then bam, with the iPad Air first generation, they kind of had like this polished iPad, uh, this thin, super light, like, like the MacBook Air like it felt like the reason it was air it was a super light you could put it in your bag travel like you could use the smart covers uh and have uh it felt really like the first polished ipad to me and i think that's why they're quite successful as an ipad uh yeah if i can add my comments around the ipad air um the ipad air is the moment when the ipad could become my primary computer like it it reached the point of being good enough to be my primary computing device all the time and that is why i appreciate it a lot uh, i think there were a lot less trade-offs in ios at the time that made it a more usable platform for people who just wanted to use it as a content consumption device which made it appealing to consumers and for professionals there were there was a high enough density of professional apps on the ipad that allowed us to get work done without also impeding on the consumers who just wanted to buy it and get use it to watch Netflix. And over time, that slowly fell apart because fucking iOS 7 and all that shit. But <laughs> uh, it's funny that we all mentioned that. And the iPad Air was the iOS 7 iPad. Yep. Just saying. Just saying. Did I kill you with that? Or okay, still alive? No, it's it's fine. It's just. <laughs> Fucking iOS 7, man. What a disaster. It, it started the the ruining of iOS, but whatever. Um, yeah, iPad Air. It, it, it's a great device. I love it. I probably could have kept using it longer than I did, honestly, which is a really good sign for an iPad because 
is like even my iPad Pro before um before iOS 12 came out it was starting to get slow and animations were getting chunky and I was getting very worried that I had spent $1,000 on a machine that I thought was going to last me longer, uh, but it didn't. And luckily iOS 12 came over and saved everything and now my iPad has a lifetime ahead of it. Uh, hopefully, fingers crossed for iOS 13. Uh, but yeah, like that iPad Air, it was a killer machine. I think 9.7 is great form factor for the majority of people. Uh, people don't all have to be crazy like me and have the giant ass 12.9 iPad Pro. Yeah, I mean, it, it's like the first iPad I would feel could be universally recommended to everybody. Okay, that, that's totally fair. If I go to my next pick, I'll go back a bit to the iPad Pro 10.5. And I think right now, like the iPad Air was to set the bar. Like, I agree with you, Nick. It, it, for a lot of people, including ourselves, I think it is the first iPad where you, it can become your more or less main device uh but to me ignoring programming and of course i don't want to go into the big discussion but i feel to me the ipad pros and especially the 10.5 are the first ipads where i say you know what i could just be a pro like really work with this ipad i could see a lot of more people using this as a replacement for their laptop uh yes sadly there's stuff i can't do but it embodies that to me, this iPad. The pencil is a good accessory for it. Even if the first generation of a pencil is not perfect, I still love to use it just as for writing notes. I am really bad drawings, but I love to use it as a note-taking device. Also that, it, like it is still part of the recent iPads and iOS devices where every generation, they are super, like the update, uh, and to go back to our ARM versus Intel discussion on the Mac section, like all of these every year since the year, the iPads just like grow exponentially performance wise. And it's just crazy to me at this point that we have iPads faster than Macs. And that's why I feel that the 10.5 embodies this. Yes, you could use it as your preferred like consumer device. Uh, that is the air, but now the pros, they become like first generation of the 9.7 was all good. But I think they po- uh, they've improved on that, and the 10.5 is really that. Starting with that device, you can do way more than what you could do before with the iPad. And I don't want to mention the iOS limitation because I'm sure you've, you've been here about that. But it's just me, the sentiment related to that. Uh, on my list, I have the 12.9 iPad Pro, which uh, I have the first generation of. Unlike you, I don't actually feel like the iPad Pro has any particular delineation between actual professional use and, like, yeah, the pencil exists. That actually makes sense for illustrators and all that. Like, I'll give you that. But, like, the iPad Pro, it's silly for me to kind of put it in my list because, like, it's my favorite iPad because it's the best iPad that I've owned so far. But at the same time, I feel like it's... It's a slippery slope for the iPad and my relationship with how people view iPad productivity, where I think the smart keyboard is, like, objectively a mistake. It should not exist. And, like, it bothers me to see people who like the smart keyboard because, to me, it's a sign of the problem with iOS productivity. Hello. So I think we'll end this episode here. Have uh, a nice uh, 100 episode. This everyone. is not like I, I thought my internet was cutting out. I was worried that you were saying hello to see if I was still there. Uh, <laughs> but uh, should I said see you next week? <laughs> yeah, more or less. But I don't know. There, there, there are a lot of 
issues with iPad productivity, which we'll undoubtedly have an episode on because I have been raging all week here at headquarters. Um, yes, yes, it's true. I think most of our text messages to me are like, this podcast about the iOS productivity. Oh, and that other one. Like, oh, you know what? It's, it's fucking weird to me that like I love iPad productivity and yet I disagree with everybody who talks about iPad productivity publicly, like I... vehemently. Like I am so angry by everything that they're saying because they're full of shit, but whatever. Okay. I thought you wanted to create DMG containers in your iPad. No, no, <laughs> no, no disk images, no zip images. Fuck everything. Um. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, 12.9 iPad Pro, uh, for people who believe in the original idea of the iPad and not like whatever the fuck iPad productivity means in 2018, <laughs> it's a great device because it has a big ass screen and it's a cool iPad that runs fast. And that's all I want. And I got it. And it's really good. So 12.9 iPad Pro is on my list. Yeah. I, I guess that's what I meant more or less is to me that the, your last sentence is exactly what embodies for me the 10.5 is more or less. Good iPad, you can do a lot of shit. Yes, you can be do productivity stuff that I think we disagree on, uh, some other stuff, but uh, in general, it just embodies that to me too. Are we ready for software? I think we are. Do you have another iPad on your list? No? No. You don't want to talk about the iPad 3? No? Uh, I could talk about the iPad 3 if you want, <laughs> but I, I don't no. have very nice things to say about it. The screen uh, is fucking nice. Yeah. And that's it. It's heavy as fuck. <laughs> yes. Okay, let's move to software. And you know what? I'll let you open this because I'm unsure I have that much to say about software. Okay. Well, first we're going to talk about macOS versions, of course. Of course. We're going back historically again. Let's go back in time to before macOS was called macOS. Let's go back oh in time to system 6.0.3. Oh, my goodness. You're with exact numbers, not generations. Oh, yes. Okay. Go on. Well, uh, there there are actually like meaningful differences between the six point point X's, but um, really, it, it was a weird time, man. Um, yeah, I can see that. But six point point three is like the good one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, because six point oh point two was really really bad. You have no idea, man. <laughs> but. Uh, so yeah, 6.0.3, like most of the experience I had running 6.0.3 was on my SE30, which I mentioned earlier. And it feels like for hackers and for tinkers, 6.0.3 was sort of the point where all of the user friendliness of the Mac and all of the hackability of the Mac met together to make like a great operating system. It was very customizable. This was at the point where... uh Control panel, custom control panels and custom extensions were not like officially supported by the operating system yet. You had to install a little hack tool that could get them installed and stuff like that. Background applications were a thing via multi-finder and all of that stuff, but you also still had like this vestige of desk accessories, which are mini applications that can also run and multitask and do weird things. Uh, it was just like a really fun place to hack. It reminds me of early io early jailbroken ios in how customizable it was and how much weird shit you could do uh and you could also totally hose your mac doing that because the, like that was part of the classic memory model where everybody shared the same memory space and you could do whatever the fuck you wanted in memory and nobody was there to punish you in the and in that way it's even more of a free-for-all than jailbroken ios i don't know it was really like there was a ton of great software coming out on the Mac at that era, 
there was a ton of really funky hacks you could do. It's just really a fun OS to use. And I don't know if that's how it was necessarily at the time, but when I was playing with it, which was like early 2000s when I was playing around with this SE30, there was just a lot of fun stuff you could do and tinker with in System 603 that I think makes it like a highlight for me. So does that make sense? Uh, it does make sense. Okay, you're you're not too angry that I'm using System 6. Oh, come on. It, it's a come good on. thing I didn't bring up System 0.1. Okay, moving on oh, to the yo, next yo, OS. Yo, 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 yo. Yes, next OS. Are, are we are we going back to modern ones or are we still uh, stuck in the classic era? Well, it's Mac OS but with a space. It's still classic era though. It's Mac OS 8.5. Oh, that's what you meant with the space. Oh my god. Yeah. Uh, the uppercase M and the space. Um so yeah, macOS 8.5, um, there were some big changes in macOS 8, namely, uh, memory, well, memory protection wasn't changed that much, but the multitasking model was improved. Previously, when you were switching between, uh, multitasking applications, the app that was running in the background wasn't actually doing anything in the background. It was just like faded out and appeared in the background. But like, if you were switching apps away from Photoshop, let's say, to go look at something in an IRC chat. While you were in that IRC chat, the Photoshop window is not actually doing anything and you couldn't continue to look at that IRC chat and your Photoshop filter will never finish running. Uh, and Mac OS 8 sort of made it so that the stuff in the background actually does continue running and stuff might actually finish one day. Uh, so that's cool. Uh, and 8.5 was really just like layers and layers of polish that went into making OS 8 even more accessible to, at the time, iMac owners, people who were buying iMacs to get online. It was really like one of the big versions that pushed user-friendliness in the Mac experience. And a, for that reason, I really, really like it. There was also weird shit like AppleScript over TCP IP, where you could send AppleScript to random machines on your network. Uh, that which sounds so is, secure. Yeah, it's a terrible idea, but it was there and it was hilarious. Um, so like it, it was just like the, the precursor to SSHing into your friend's computers and making the computer speak to them and shit. <laughs> really fun times. 8.5 is like my favorite classic version overall. Um, as a user of Mac OS, it is one of the greater versions of classic Mac OS. That said, like classic Mac OS, not great. In modern standards, uh, there were a lot of times when Windows did actually technically outpace uh, the classic Mac, and we were very behind at the time, and luckily that's when Mac OS X came and saved things. So now I'm going to go into Mac OS X. I think I know what your versions are on your list, so I will segue gracefully into them by saying that I have three OS X versions. Yeah, I, I, come on, I sent you my two, and I'm sure those are the two out of three in the trifecta. Yes, so the trifecta is the trifecta of the even versions of 10.2, 10.4, and 10.6. So that is Jaguar, or if you're Steve Jobs, Jaguar, Tiger, and Snow Leopard. Which, honestly, like, those three versions of the macOS put together are the arc that brings modern macOS. Like, that is really, like, the growth of modern macOS happened across those three versions, and then everything after that has felt practically meaningless uh, in comparison. Um, so 10.2 was really exciting because it gave us iChat. Hell yeah, iChat. Everybody loves iChat, except none of the protocols that iChat supports exist anymore. <laughs> but at the time, it was really cool. 
Hey, iMessage still exists, by the way. Uh, okay, whatever. Uh, if you want unreliable texting over Apple push notification service, you can use oh, iMessage. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, if you're a real human being, you can use other messaging services. Uh, so yeah, uh, 10.2 was just really more stable than a lot of other things. I feel like the OS started losing a lot of its nextiness and started gaining more of its own personality in 10.2, uh, just in the way that like widgets were laid out in 10.1 and 10.0. There were a lot of big square buttons in toolbars sometimes that were really weird. And they only made sense if you knew that that was how toolbars looked in the next days. Um, so they flattened out like all of the weird next stuff. Uh, mail became usable. Uh, that was really cool. I think iCal was in Jaguar. I, I might be mistaking that with, uh, Panther, but I'm pretty sure it was in Jaguar. Like, it started having enough bundled applications to feel like a full operating system. Uh, because earlier on, you would have to defer a lot to third party apps, which is not necessarily a bad thing. It's just that Apple was in a very vulnerable spot with the migration to OS 10 and, they basically had to have everyone rewrite their applications from scratch or adapt it using Carbon, and that was going to take time. And they needed to have some form of productivity application in the OS so that people could continue doing stuff as they were slowly killing off OS 9. And 10.2 really had like the full suite of productivity applications to actually make OS 10 usable day-to-day by a lot of people. 10.4 came along, brought Spotlight, Dashboard... Hey. You're not talking about Sherlock and nor Rendezvous? Oh, Rendezvous is actually important uh, because Rendezvous is oh, like... Oh, really? Okay, I'm making a joke about Bonjour, but okay, sure. Yeah, uh, Rendezvous slash Bonjour is actually very important because it is the backbone of basically all of modern Mac networking. Uh, so thank you for Jaguar, for uh, all of that stuff. Anytime your devices are able to auto-discover each other on a network, that is thanks to Rendezvous, which like pioneered this shit uh back in 2002 so cool okay 10.4 spotlight dashboard um lots of other weird shit the <laughs> uh i don't know i was about to say cordata but cordata is 10.3 that's true yeah um, oh front row we talked about tv apple tv os i see that in uh, some of my notes here yeah yeah front row, front the... row. i yeah. was trying to forget about that but yeah I know, I know, I know. But you know what? Uh, when we were talking about, uh, no, I think it's, yeah, when you said that for 8.5, it feels to me that 10.4 was the first OS. It, it was long lived too, right? It, if I see it, it started in April 2005 and then ended up being shipping the last update to it in November 2007. And it, it was the OS that brought the uh, PowerPC into Intel transition. Uh, it had a lot, a lot, a lot of bug fixes, updates to it. Yeah. It felt that uh, maybe, like, because people say like, oh, 10.4 was not that great of an update. It was not really stable. Like people remember they did them to like uh, romanticize their memories of it. But it feels to me that at that time, Apple really wanted to spend time making sure we ship you new shit, but we make you, we make sure that we can count the bugs uh, and then we also put a lot of improvements and uh, bug fixes, a lot of it to end up to 10.4.11, which to me felt like super uber stable as an OS, which 
I feel, and I'm, thinking, I'm sure we'll talk a bit about that. I feel that this sentiment of the last version I installed of a specific OS is super stable. I feel that more and more that is kind of moving away in recent recent uh, macOS versions. Yeah, and I think the reason it feels pronounced is because you never actually use 10.0, 10.1, like the early, early OS 10s. Like that shit was not stable. There is a reason a lot of people did not jump on until 10.1 or 10.2 is that they were practically unusable and uh, how unstable they were. And so 10.2, 10.4, 10.6 was really like when Apple had to prove that this operating system can be stable just to prove to us that it's actually possible and that this is not like the giant house of cards that is going to come down crumbling in a couple of years. Um, and there was a lot of stuff in a early OS 10 that was maybe too ambitious given the hardware it was running on, but because they knew what was coming down the line was setting the stage for what would be great in a couple of years. And that those rough transition years of 10.2, 10.4, 10.6, when they really smoothed out the experience, um, is really like, no, we're serious. OS ten is the future. Please stop using classic. Please, please, please. <laughs> uh, and it worked, which is great. Um, one other note I want to add for 10.4 uh, on the UI uh, side of things. Uh, this is when unified design became a thing so previously on uh, up until 10.4 um the title bar and the toolbar were two separate bars like visibly they had a separator in every previous version of uh of the mac os and what 10.4 did that was really special is it said okay no more separator bar and now this is one smooth texture that unifies both of those things and I think in later versions, maybe 10.6, they actually converted that to being uh, a vector gradient, uh, which was setting the stage for high DPI, which we wouldn't get for a really long ass time on the back. Uh, but like it went back that far, uh, the sort of origin of the unified design thing and the unified design language is still visible in modern Mac OS. And in fact, like Mojave's dark mode is entirely based on the premise that there's this unified gradient and we can just switch out the gradient and stuff works. Um, so yeah, it was really nice uh, UI transition that really cleaned up the Mac OS for another couple of years. And then 10.6 came and you can probably talk about this because I'm losing my voice. Sure. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, uh, for a lot of people, I think including ourselves a bit, uh, we tend to romanticize this one too uh, because uh, 10.6 was the no new feature where all of the new features were mostly dev stuff. They changed a lot in the US. Uh, also, I'm looking right now at the uh, history of versions. There was a lot of like, I see here we had 10.6.3, but and 10.6.3 version 1.1 and same, same thing for 10.6.8 and 10.6.8 1.1. So it was not as ideal as stability as we remember when you need to do a hot fix on your hot patch, uh, on your, uh, fixed patch right but the feeling you had when you were using the software was remember reminiscing of 10.4 which was a couple years back right you had this tiktok approach where they added new stuff and then they would like maybe stabilize it in the next release and then uh, with 10.5 you had new a lot a lot of new stuff like time machine all that stuff and then in 10.6 you had no new features but a lot about uh, OpenCL, Grand Central Dispatch, 
support for new Macintosh. Like all of the new Macs hardware was supported all of the box. And that was kind of the last time where this is to me the equivalent of iOS 12 what we've been seeing is it's uh yes we're giving you a feature because we can have to say performance improvement but it is a performance improvement focus OS update and it does feel to me that sometimes this is what we need because you accumulate so much craft that either you just deal with it or you don't and those updates when you deal with it if you do it the right way they feel so good for the user and that's what to me Snow Leopard was is it is a you don't see the exact you don't see the niceties of this update on the screenshot and during the presentation except if apple is probably putting like chart numbers saying like oh this is 10 times faster than on the previous OS because we optimized the bug or we are uh like we're better at auto layout because we didn't write uh, auto layout properly because then there was a big bug <laughs> in, in ios 12 but like this was the embodiment of the os you updated it because you might have let's trust what Apple says and then you realize a week after updating that oh shit they were right why the fuck did I wait to update because yes there's no new feature but the fact that I'm so much performant on my OS daily that is the feature by itself yep and the no new features is really like it there's the asterisk because it was a big release for developers and it really laid the foundation for modern Mac development that would last until now basically where now we're seeing sort of a shift because Swift is changing things fundamentally. But the last 10 years of Objective-C Mac apps have all built really on technologies that came out of 10.6. True. And, oh, I'm looking at Wikipedia quickly. I am reminded that it was the first OS to not support PowerPCs anymore. Yep. So the part of it, too, is removing all of the legacy related to the PowerPC architecture of the OS. So I'm sure that helped a lot into this performance improvement OS. Well, they couldn't dump all of it because there was still like compatibility stuff. Yeah, there was a Rosetta and all that stuff. But still, that it's kind of the first one we say it won't run on uh, PowerPC hardware, but maybe PowerPC compatible application will run on it. They ended PowerPC support a lot sooner than I thought they would, but there hmm. you go. Who knows? Maybe it's going to be an indication of what we'll do when we have our Macs. What? Speaking of Good. ARM devices... <laughs> Good. That was your last uh, OS you wanted to talk? Uh, last Mac OS, yeah. Yes. You know what? I think it's early to talk about that, but it feels to me that the kind of, kind of first feedback that I get from Moavi that we might see, not an equivalent to Snow Leopard, but a bit going back to those few OS's update from, like the, the, the I would say, the 10.4 to 10.6 range, where it feels that after the fast pace, we're not sure what we want to do with the Mac and we don't care too much about fixing bugs like the past few years. Uh, that Moavi is kind of a big, like a solid big release for Mac OS. Lots of big features uh, for the users. No, that's not, not lots of big features. Lots of small features that as a whole, you say like 1 plus 2 plus 3 make them something big. And hopefully uh, we are like, we will we be looking at the last few uh, uh, macOS updates as something that should not have happened and that Apple course corrected. Maybe. I'm using it. It's fine. Um, I am being shocked by how many apps I use regularly that are still not 64-bit. Oh, okay. That, oops, that's a so problem. So that is worrisome. Yes, it is very worrisome. So uh, developers, please get your shit together. Thank you. <laughs> 
Okay, let's move to iOS. Okay, I have two iOS versions. Okay, and uh, they're they're specific subversions. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, of course they are. Uh, you knew I was going to do this shit. I knew. I knew. You did a whole episode about this shit, so. Yes, 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 yes. Well, one of them was on that episode, and it's uh, iOS 3.2. Uh, the original release of iOS that shipped with the iPad. Like, I, I basically made that entire episode just to talk about iOS 3.2. Uh, technically, iPhone OS for iPad 3.2. It is the original release of iOS for the first generation iPad. It has only ever been on that device. I think there was also a 3.2.1 that was intended to patch out like a day one jailbreak. Lol. Um, but <laughs> 3.2 was really, really good. 3.2 actually managed to convince me that we didn't actually need multitasking on the iPad because switching between apps was so fast that it basically didn't feel like you needed it, which is wow, an insane okay. mind trick. I swear at the time that was how I felt. Yeah, um, yeah, but still. Even like if you had access to the class dump of what Springboard looked like on the iPad, Springboard has never been as elegant as it was <laughs> in that one throwaway release. Uh, um, I think because it was throwaway, they made it as simple and as clean as possible and it is amazing. Uh, so I have like some deep respect for that version of Springboard because I loved it and it was extremely hackable and it was great. And it just felt really fast. Like, and it makes sense because like you had this device that was running basically iOS 3.1.3 modded to have a little couple things on a device that should have been running iOS 4. Uh, and it was just amazing. And I really, really liked it. Uh, then my other pick, and I think this is where we sort of kind of meet is 4.2.1, which you mentioned iOS 4. I guess we can cover all of iOS 4 together, but I think like what we're actually thinking of when we think of iOS 4 is 4.2.1. Why not 4.3? Uh, well, okay. I choose 4.2.1 because it's the initial release that was actually like shipping on the iPad and stuff. And it worked very reliably, whereas I know like 4.3, at least for Springboard related hacking stuff mm. it was less reliable so i have worse memories of it okay no fair point uh i'm surprised you haven't mentioned like the verizon version of fucking <laughs> ios 4 uh, why would i mention it i'm not, i'm surprised that you did not mention it uh greatest version in the world never used it though uh, i love having weird version requirements in my city packages <laughs> yeah, yeah. you don't have anything to say about ios 4 Yes, I'm surprised that you don't have anything to say about iOS 4. That's why I'm okay, waiting for you okay, to say okay, stuff. Okay, okay, okay. But okay, uh, I can uh, go first. I can go first. So go first, and then I'll have my big rant. I, I, okay. So after they, they did finally merge the iPad version and the like, the iPad branch. Let's put it this way. Uh, yep. Which happened in 4.1? If I remember. Pretty sure it's 4.2. 4.2 that they did that. Yeah. Okay, maybe 4.2. I guess. 4.1, I believe, was Game Center, which is even weirder. <laughs> oh, okay, yes. But once they fixed that issue, because to me that was quite weird. Once they fixed that, uh, it, for the 4.0 channel, it kind of kickstarted the future of iOS, saying like, okay, we need what we want. We were unsure up until 4 what we wanted to do with this, including the iPad and even tvOS. Um, uh, now we kind of have an idea of where we should go. Let's make sure that everything works fine as a foundation and then let's move forward. 
So for me, iOS 4 may not be the best iOS version, but it is the, like, we are building a foundation. We need to clean that up. All of the, maybe not all of the shortcuts, but a lot of stuff we've done in the shortcuts to ship the iPhone, to ship the iPad and make sure we do, uh, add, we do build our foundation so we can scale it for both the iPhone, the iPad and now watch OS and TV OS and all of the, what is the modern iOS versions. And that is to me the emblem that is iOS 4. And you were right. It's 4.2.1 that did the merge. The iPad compatibility release was with that. Cool. One of the things that launched in iOS 4 was multitasking. And like I said earlier in 3.2, like I was convinced that we didn't need multitasking. As soon as I installed the beta of 4 on my um, third generation iPod Touch, I got it immediately. I got like, oh, okay, no, this this is good. We We really benefit from having multitasking on this device. And the one thing that troubled me at the time was that I wasn't a fan of the strategy they were using to prioritize which applications were staying in memory. Because to me, um, it shouldn't necessarily have been your most recent apps. It should be your most used apps that should have been prioritized to stay in memory. Because like stuff that's on your dock, kind of like we do on uh, watchOS, right? Apps you have mm-hmm. on your complications and dock are prioritized for staying open in the background versus other applications that are just transient. Um that was not the case on iOS 4. iOS 4 was basically, no, the most recent apps uh, are prioritized. And then if we have to kill something, we're going to kill like the oldest thing or the thing that eats the most memory, depending on context. Um, and I thought that was a bad approach in general, though. Like as we've gotten more RAM in iOS devices, it hasn't really been an issue that much, um, which is good, I guess. Like I, I used to... I used to quit apps in the multitasking launcher, which is like a terrible admission, but not because I wanted to free my memory or any other bullshit like this. It was literally just like, I want these four apps to permanently be in the background. And if anything else is open, then those four apps can potentially be purged out of memory, which is how I was seeing it. Eventually I just gave up because it was too much trouble to manage. Um, But like, iOS 4 eventually sold me on the multitasking model that Apple was going for. And I love how low maintenance it is and how you basically never have to think about iOS multitasking until a stupid genius tells you to start cleaning your apps (laughs) out of your launcher. Um, So I really like that. The music app, I have strong feelings about the music app in iOS versions. I think 4 had the last good version of it. I really miss being able to use my iPhone as an iPod reliably. Now it just feels fucking impossible, uh, which is unfortunate. Apple Music app has gone crazy stupid. Um, And I've turned to cloud streaming services like the fucking terrible YouTube Music (laughs) and uh, Amazon Prime Music instead, which are terrible applications, but slightly better than apple music which is sad because you made itunes you know how to manage music in theory whatever i don't know ios 4 really feels like the perfect version of ios to me and it's like peak forestall and i love it Ah. It, it's like it's a vision of what ios could have been if forestall had been there longer and i love that and i am increasingly disaligned with the direction ios is taking in modern os versions 
and I just think about iOS 4 like several times a week. I'm like, this was better in iOS 4. This was better in iOS 4. This was better in iOS 4. And I this feel was like non-existent we're... in iOS 4. This was non-existent in iOS 4. Yeah, I could also say that, but like, we need like I sometimes I feel like we need regression tests for iOS features. <laughs> like, it's there. There's so much stuff that used to be really good in iOS 4 that is now unusable, and now we have other toys to play with instead. And they're not necessarily headed in the right direction. And that is why I enjoy modern iOS less than I enjoyed iOS 4.2.1. Okay, that's a good point. I feel to me that, <coughs> yes, there have been a couple of regression after iOS 4, like the, the 5 to 6, 7, and then like the the moving up to 7. Uh, I was personally unsure where was the vision for iOS for that. I, I do remember the fucking ugly status bar. Oh, this uh, this kills <laughs> the status me. bar fighting era was really weird because one version you had the entirely black status bar, then the next one they were like, let's just make this the same color as the nav bar for some reason, right? And then they were iOS seven and they were like, haha, fuck you, we're just gonna make everything ugly instead. True, but what the I see right now that because the status bar is kind of this whole area that could be joined with the navigation bar. I feel that we we have we right went now... back to iOS 6. <laughs> yes, but less ugly. Because, the, like, remember, there was, still, yes. there was still a separation, right? There was still a visual separation that this is your app and this is the status bar, but we want it to be seamless, but not really, because we still want to keep telling you that this is the status bar. I'm like, ah. Well, yeah, the, the issue is the nav bar gradient stopped right at the status bar and then it was a static color for the background of the status bar which i mean it it makes sense because the text would be less readable if it had continued the gradient all the way to the top but now with a flat design it's just like flat background color so who cares (laughs) it's readable anyway yeah and it works for that specific case and i think like a lot of the recent changes to ios design make a lot of sense on the iphone 10 uh form factor like they make a lot more sense for that form factor uh, but for everyone who is not on those phones, it's really, really ugly. And like on an iPhone SE, apps with that giant New York Times UI design <laughs> are unusable. Yeah, yeah. The half of your screen is just the title. Yeah. Good. Do you have anything else to say? I uh, like for me, iOS is like after that, like we we did regression to iOS seven, and then we're like slowly but surely like seven, eight is better than seven, nine is better than eight. So that's why I don't have that much to say. Uh, it feels that, yes, there was p- specific, like, bad releases, but we're, like, slowly but surely going back the hill again. Here's the distinction I'd make. Ever since 4.2.1, there has been something in iOS that has, in new iOS versions that has made me angry. Okay. Not me, but uh, I couldn't understand that point. I- I'm sure there are things that have made you angry in new versions of iOS. You're just not thinking of them now. No, no, no. There is. But to me, there was still stuff back then. Oh, okay, okay. That's okay. my point uh, is, it to me, it's not different. And I feel for you that it is. Well, for, for me, like, f- well, I only mentioned two version numbers, right? So, I mean, like, there were not that many releases where there were things that did not actually piss me off. Uh, <laughs> there was 3.2 and there was 4.2.1. So, like, like but, good job, Apple. You got two out of God knows how many. Yes. Two is better than zero. That's why I will say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, like, there's been something in every iOS version that has made me angry, sometimes way more angry than others. Like iOS 7 was freaking terrible. Uh, 
and like iOS 5, iOS 6, like I had philosophical disagreements with certain features, but not enough to ruin the entire release, right? Mm. Uh, and it, sometimes it was actually worse when I was a developer because I had to actually try to work around some of these limitations, whereas now I'm just a user. I do that now. Yeah, I, yes, I, I do that in the iOS 7 world. Can you imagine? Uh, oh, well, I, trust me, I'm a web developer who has to work around stuff that Safari doesn't do for security reasons now. So I, I'm very aware about <laughs> stupid workarounds. And uh, that's another episode we should do. But yes. uh, yeah, I, I uh, on the small tangent about that, this week, I've discovered something we were doing more, including myself. I worked like I remembered that I coded the act we were doing for years to make sure that we had wide status bar on navigation <laughs> controllers. And now it was just like, it's just like, Oh, tell the bar that it should be black content. And then the navigation controllers say like, Oh no, the status bar should be white. So yes, a lot of stuff, uh, like lots of simple stuff that, uh, sometimes when you figure out even years after you're like, seriously, I would like to have learned that like three years ago. <laughs> but yes, uh, I think we are at our all times favorite. Yes. My correct. And Yannick, before we started the episode, I would assume that would be our, and I think even after just taking like two and a half hours talking about all of this, it is still hard for me to choose. <sighs> so before I started the episode, I wrote, of course, my beloved MacBook Air <laughs> and the iPhone. See, I was saying iPhone 4S, 5S. Yeah. But after a discussion, not that you influenced me, but it made me think even more, my choice is going to be hard between the MacBook Air and the iPhone 5 series. That's going to be our choice. So to me, those two have a big place in my life in general. They also are kind of, to me, if you want to, if you want me to describe what Apple is and my, since we might have moved away from this or, what I feel that Apple is demonstrating and demoing to the world is like you take those two products and that's why uh, that and you start to understand what they are. These, these two products describe what Apple has been and is for years and hopefully will still be in the years to come. Yeah, well, it's the intersection between consumer electronics and computing, like totally. personal computing. Totally. So it, it makes sense to have those two products. I am surprised and hopefully maybe with <coughs> later improvements on iOS and on the iPads and all that stuff, not going back to our iOS uh, productivity discussion, but I am still surprised that I'm not considering the iPad there, but that's life. I guess my mobile device are either a phone or a laptop. Since I don't know how to choose what to choose right now between those two, uh, let's go with yours. Can you choose? Yes. Wow. Okay. What is it? Okay, so this is going to be polarizing, of course, but it's of course, the it's you. 12.9 iPad Pro. Oh, and okay. Let me justify this briefly. So we just talked about your two products, right? The intersection yes. between consumer electronics and personal computing. The iPad is what happens when you take those two things and you make them into one product because it is the fusion between the iPhone and the Mac. And hmm. It's not quite there necessarily on a software level yet, question mark, because of Marzipan and all that stuff. And again, I don't want to get into that. But um, it represents like personal computing that is accessible to the masses. Masses asterisk with sufficient income to actually be able to pay for one of these iPad Pros. Um, yes, of course. Although the iPad Pro at that time was cheaper than most Macs were. Uh, so 
make what you will of it. it nowadays, I'm not so sure, but whatever. Um, and I think what's really important about all of these Apple products is like the MacBook Air, I can probably say is the best value computer that the, that Apple has ever made and probably will ever make. But do you feel joy when you use that computer? Or let's say going to the MacBook Pro, the Retina MacBook Pro that I'm using right now. Like, I like using this Mac, but I am not, like, joyful using this Mac. I am just satisfied that this Mac is doing its job. The iPads and the iPad Pros really do a great job through the combination of the operating system, third-party applications by, like, actual developers who take the iPad seriously. All this combination just leads you to having a really good time with your main computing device. And in my case, that is the iPad Pro. And I am a lot more happy using the iPad as a primary computing device than I would be using my Mac. And this is where all of my, like, angry passion about (laughs) iPad productivity comes out (laughs) is because I see the way I enjoy the iPad Pro to be under threat by feature suggestions that people who are also using the iPad Pro for productivity are making that are bad feature suggestions for what the iPad should be. I think there's a lot of obsession right now in the iPad world about vestiges of personal computing history. And the beauty of iOS is that we don't have those vestiges and we can start over and we can design a system that is clean and that is user-friendly in a way that personal computers couldn't be user-friendly because they had certain assumptions built into them from historical reasons and all that stuff. And the more I hear people begging for, let's put a keyboard and mouse on the iPad. Let's put the Finder on the iPad. Let's put uh, USB storage support on the iPad. Uh, all of this stuff. Like, And there's more of it. Like, There's more of it this week because of the iPad Pro reviews and all that stuff. I just hear people asking for a Mac in a different form factor, and I do not hear people asking for things that will make iOS better at the things that iOS is suited for. I think that um, the original pitch for the iPad as being a product that sits in between the Mac and the uh, and the iPhone stays true to this day, and that if the Mac wants to continue to survive and to have a reason to exist, it needs to be good in certain tasks that the iPad is not and vice versa. And I think they can be complementary products instead of having the iPad forced into becoming effectively like a shittier Mac or a Mac with a touchscreen that sometimes morphs into a being a trackpad operating system because we decided to give the shit for a trackpad for God knows what reason. Like, I think there's very little thought about the ideals of the iPad that are going into the discussion of, about the iPad today, and people want short-term solutions to problems that they have with their productivity workflows instead of thinking about like what the iPad should be as a computer going forward. Basically, I have the long-term view, and everybody else has short-term view, and they just want to plug their fucking USB drives in their iPad. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, I can understand why you said it was being uh, controversial, but I don't think it is. That, that that's, that's why I ended my pick on saying, like, I'm surprised that I'm not putting an iPad there. Uh, but then I can understand why you chose the iPad. Uh, if I, uh, reflect on some of my choice, uh, what makes me happy? Uh, obviously the MacBook Air, since I no longer use it, no longer makes me happy. Uh, but this is a device that made me happy for a long time. I feel that the 
5s generation was also the same uh and if i were to look at phones like i love my 6s but it was eh. like it was good but not perfect uh i think the 10 is close to that but to to recent and because i was happy with the 5s but I would say that because I've used my MacBook Air for longer, I would really say that the MacBook Air will be my favorite pick. So I made a choice. Wow, I made a choice. Congratulations. Good. Any uh, final thoughts? Uh, I hope Apple is still around for a long time because otherwise who the fuck is going to make good products? There are not very many companies in the world that make good products. And I'm happy that Apple is... Still kind of making good products? Still kind of? I guess, I guess if we're still around... If they're not laptops. True. Okay. Fair point. I guess if we're still around for a 200 episode, maybe we'll do another one. That would more or less mean in four years. I'm Hopefully, like we are both still around. Whether we are still podcasting, who knows? Future will, uh, will say. But I, I do hope that in four years I'll still be alive. And I hope that you are too. Uh, I hope so too. So before I go to more to uh to on the morbid side, uh this was a funny exercise. I would like to know that uh this might have become our longest episode where we just talk. It's definitely our longest episode and I'm going to have such a fucking fun weekend editing this podcast. Uh, I look and I think it, the longest episode is at 2 hours 27. So depending on how much stuff you edit out, uh it might really be our longest uh, Limipo episode. So uh, since you're about to edit, you need to edit that over the weekend, uh, let's wrap it up. Pray for truncate silence. <laughs> All right. So if you want to see the show notes for this episode, which will no, undoubtedly contain links to a ton of the products we talked about today, uh, you can go to limitlesspossibility.net slash 100, or you can find all of our 99 previous episodes on the website at limitlesspossibility.net. Go follow us on Twitter. We're at limipo underscore podcast. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. We're also available there individually. I am at Sakarina. That's S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A. And Ducodivia is available at Lucanush, L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-E, and up to the next 100 episode. See you in two weeks. See you in two weeks.